Please like and subscribe to Landry.audio. We are available on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Facebook, and Instagram. Today, the Chief Peter Graham, a professional fighter with 124 fights across kickboxing, full contact karate, boxing, and MMA. The Chief speaks to us from his home in Sydney. I had the chance to train with Peter for a few years between 2010 and 2014, where he was starting to dip his toes into MMA at Larry Papadopoulos' Boxing Works Gym. Peter has won six kickboxing world titles, the Australian Heavyweight Boxing Championship, a WBF boxing title, and a WKBF Thai Boxing World title, and was the Australian and New Zealand full contact Hyokushin champion. He is a veteran of K1, KSW, and Bellator MMA. He now owns and runs his own gym, IMC Prospect, in Sydney's western suburbs. How are we today, Chief? I'm good, man. It's a beautiful day where I am. It's nice and sunny, not too hot. I can't stand hot weather, so... It's, I'm really happy. Oh, really? I hate that we're coming into winter. Can't stand the dampness, the rain, any of that stuff. I uh, much rather prefer uh, my, to be My wife's from much. Brazil, so she, when we went to Darwin, she's like, oh, let's move to Darwin. I'm like, you're freaking <laughs> crazy. Let's move to Tasmania. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so that's about this, our biggest conflict ever. That's, that's a pretty good marriage then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not too bad. She uh, likes me. Where does, uh, actually, it's easiest question to ask right out of the gate. Let's talk about the nickname. Where does the chief come from? You know what? It was when I was still an amateur, I was training at a place in Ramwick called Black Belt Pro. And everyone said, oh, you know, hey, Pete, you need a nickname. Uh, I have a nickname, but uh, so, uh, that's not really a, a fight nickname. And everyone's kind of shooting names around like, Peter the Great. I'm like, come on, I'm not calling myself Peter the Great. That's ridiculous. And uh, and I, I said, I said, look, you know, I can't name myself. You just sound like a tool, you know, giving yourself your own name. I said, you guys got to come up with it. Uh, and then a guy called Matt Spooner said, let's call him the chief. He's the chief of anything. You know, he seems to run everything anyway. You know, it's just like, you know, and you always win and, you know, you're always kind of waffling on. <laughs> Uh, and then one of the other guys said, yeah, yeah, we'll get, I, I got one of those big Indian uh, chief uh, headdresses headgear. or whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah, headdresses. Um, uh, I'll, I'll bring it to the next fight. And I said, okay, you bring that and uh, I'll, I'll call myself the chief. And I just, I, you know, if you think, man, no one ever does it, right? <laughs> yeah. Everyone forgets or everyone, you know, says it, doesn't follow through. And they followed through and turned up with it. You know, I always like American Indians, and you know, I, you know, I like you know their story and and their struggle. You know, it's really interesting. You know, I find that stuff really interesting. Uh, and you know, uh, I thought, okay, well, you guys did it, and it just stuck, and no one ever. You know, so you get called something; it's not really you or a fit. You know, if they call you psycho and you, you know, mild mannered. It's not really going to stick. So I guess the chief stuck. And uh, now it's also people call me the chief all the time, like as a nickname. So I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I like it. It's interesting that you mentioned um, Matt Spooner because he was instructing I got, I got, there. I got my DNA done. Yeah. Oh, so I said I even got my DNA done hoping that I might have some, you know, uh, Central American Indian. I don't. Right. So, <laughs> um, it's, it, so uh, yeah, and you're right, Matt. Sp- <laughs> oh, sorry, you go. 
No, no, I think we're just with the with the lag in the the telephone. I think we're just cutting each other off. But you had said um, um, Matt Spooner because he was instructing there at the same time I was there. So you guys have known each other for a while, huh? Yeah, Matt Spooner and me have known each other for oh man, since I was in my since I was like twenty or something. Mm. Uh, we even worked on the doors at nightclubs and stuff together. And, uh, yeah, we, we we trained at Black Belt Pro. Man, yeah, we've known each other a really, really long time. Well, how did you get into um, uh, what we want to do today? Is we want to talk about your fight career and some of the lessons that you've learned, and you can share some stories with us. Um, what's you've you've been around for a long time. So while a lot of people my age and younger go sort of directly into MMA or start with one of the common bases like Thai boxing, wrestling, or BJJ first, you come from a karate background. So do you want to talk a little bit about? I guess how you found um, karate moved into Kyokushin and I guess how that led to a, a fighting career for yourself. Yeah, it's pretty simple. You know, uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I lived in refuges and I was a street kid and, uh, you know, like most kids in refuges and street kids, I wasn't really doing much, but I wanted to do something. Uh, you know, I, I had a really, really, really bad, time of school because I went to so many different schools uh, and because of the, how I lived I just every couple of months I moved and you know that was for years as well you know no one really giving me any guidance or support or you know like you know like people have a mom and dad and both brothers and sisters uncles and aunties or even grandparents or whatever I didn't have any of that growing up it was just kind of bounced around from one place to another to another like in uh, government you know what they call youth homeless uh, refuges and stuff and I got to about 17 and I thought man I'm absolutely shit at everything I'm shit at making friends I'm shit at uh, school I'm just literally I just I was not good at anything I thought I've got to if, if I continue like this I'm going to be nothing I'm just I'm never going to achieve anything in my life I need to I need to get something and I thought well my education is so bad uh, you know I always thought I could you know I was uh, you know, slightly athletic, except at that time I wasn't. I used to smoke cigarettes. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, when I was a kid. I mean, they even gave it to us in the refuges. Uh, the, the, you know, the government refuges, they used to put give us cigarettes. Right. Okay. Uh, like, yeah, I know. It's crazy, <laughs> right? But anyway, maybe it was so we wouldn't fight each other or stuff like that. I don't know. <laughs> Keep us calm. Um, get us ready for jail, probably. <laughs> They gave us the same type of cigarettes they gave the prisoners in jail too. They gave us white box rollers. Can, can I ask how you found yourself in that position? Um, how how do you, because uh, in other interviews you said that, you know, you, you did have parents and stuff. So how you call them refuges, I guess, um, like ward of the state. How did you find yourself in in that position as a, as a youth? Okay, so clearly I, you know, I, I have a biological mother and father. Uh uh, and I lived with both for some time. Uh, uh, what happened? I mean, I guess it was just the you know breakdown of the family unit. I mean, you know, t- to begin with, you know, uh, my mom and dad got divorced when I was young, and then um, you know we went from you know living in the North Shore and you know having a nice home and you know I guess I really you know. Uh, you know, privileged, nice life to, you know, seemingly having nothing overnight. 
Uh, and I guess, you know, that affected my mother. And she kind of had a mental breakdown and put all the kids in, uh, like, uh, went to child services, you know, they drop you off and, you know, went there a couple of times and she, you know, she kind of got better or, you know, got her head together or whatever it was. And we come home again. And, but she had a lot of issues. Uh, it wasn't drugs and alcohol, but there was, you know, clearly issues. And, um, she and I used to argue all the time. And I was a, I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a criminal or anything like that. It was just a, I guess she wasn't cut out to raise kids. Uh, and, you know, I got dropped off at, you know, you know, child services again. And then finally was about 12, maybe I was 13. She just kicked me out and said, don't ever come back. And, you know, and then, you know, there was some contact. I stayed at some friends' houses. And then the school found out and they said, well, what's going on? I said, oh, well, you know, we're staying with this family, then another family. Then you kind of, you know, you kind of wear out your stay a little bit. You know, it's like, well, mm. you know, you've been here for a while. We kind of thought that you were going to work it out with your mom or something. Uh, and then I never knew where my dad was. And then, and my mom wouldn't let me know where it was. And, you know, I had an older brother who was kind of in and out of boys' homes and stuff. And, you know, they wouldn't let me know where he was. And, uh, my mom wouldn't let me know where my, any of my aunt, aunties or uncles or my grandparents were. So it's all secret, secret. It's a crazy story, man. Anyway, so uh, I didn't have anyone I'd turn to, no one to kind of say, hey, don't worry, you can come and live with us. Or, or not that I was aware of at the time, especially when I was real young. And uh, I just, you know, end up going to, uh, you know, like a government-run refuge. Mm. And then you kind of go from one to another to another. So you start off in... One that's, uh, you know, like crisis. You know, so like if your mom and dad uh, you know, are unable to look after you, you know, really suddenly, they, they'll put kids into a, what they call a crisis refuge. Uh, and then, you know, say your parents got hurt or something like that, or most of the time it's, you know, your dad went to jail and your mom's an alcoholic who, you know, put herself in a hospital or something. So, you know, it's tragic for most of the kids. Um and then they might get it together so you come back and, you know, you'll go home, you know. And then there's to have uh, like a medium-term refuges. Uh, and that means, you know, you say you're, just say you've got a single mom and she gets incarcerated. Uh, and then you're going to go and stay. And she might only have two months. So you can go live at a refuge for two months. And they're pretty good. They give you a clean bed and food and, you know, most of the people most of the time really nice. Uh and then you go home. Uh, and then there's long-term, uh, and they can get, put you into foster homes. And I guess you could also be adopted. Uh, but what happens is you have to have like a, it's almost like a consent form from the parent. They've got to agree to say, I'm going to let the government look after you. Uh, and my mom never did that. So I just stayed in like, for the most, you know, for the most of the majority of the time, in either crisis or medium-term refuges uh, until I was old enough to stay in one for longer, which is when you're about 18. So I just kept on getting kicked around from one place to another place to another place for you know, all of my uh, teenage years and uh, a little later. Uh, so is that, what, is that what you mean, sort of moving around between schools regularly as well? Is that because you were getting bumped around with your housing arrangements? Yeah, so you you know you'd move to another area, so you just they just put you in another school. 
right. Okay. But there was still support. So you just you end up 18 as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they have support. They have what they call, uh, 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 I think it's, uh, what was it called? It's been a while. Uh, uh, young adult. So what they do, they becomes less care and, you know, they give you a bit of guidance. And, but most of the time, you know, looking back now, what they're all kind of setting you up for is, you know, now when you go to jail, make sure you do this or, you know, right. you know this is the best way to get unemployment benefits and this is what you do when you, uh, <laughs> you know, when you get caught with, you know, illegal, uh, you know, uh, illegal. So it really is low expectations on, on what they expect to come from you beyond that. Well, certainly for me, they didn't ever feel the weight of expectation on my shoulders from anyone, that's for sure. Okay. Um, you had mentioned something that was pretty, inter- very interesting. You had said that you recognized that you weren't good at anything. So prior to starting martial arts, was the goal just to find a skill that you could do or, or how did that lead towards starting karate? Well, to answer that question, I kind of have to go back in time. When I was 14, uh, I wasn't even living in a refuge. Uh, I, w- I was living in uh, a massive stormwater drain, so to speak, in a place called Eastwood, just in a nice suburb outside of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And the reason uh, I wasn't living on the streets like most street kids in the city is because I was from the Northern Beaches. And that's a really nice area. Uh, you know, you don't really meet kids who end up as street kids and uh, living refuges, you know, uh, from the northern beaches. So uh, I was scared. I was like, man, if I hang around with these guys, they're going to find out that I'm from northern beaches and beat me up. And you know, it was all in my head. But you know, I was like, I never told it anyone. I thought if I if I tell them that, they're going to say, hey, this kid's not from the you know from the, you know even from the eastern suburbs, was way tougher area than the you know from the northern beaches. So I, I never told anyone. That I was from the northern beaches. And anyway, so I was living in this uh, massive uh, stormwater drain. And um, it was uh, nearly my sister's birthday, which is in the middle, just like July. So it was, you know, uh, not exactly an awesome time. Uh, so what I used to do is I, I used to stash my backpack in there and stuff so no one would go. And I had like a big fence around it. But I just jumped the fence, go in there, and I could hide all my stuff in there, which was, you know, comprised of a backpack. Uh, but I'd, uh, I mean, this goes to show how much of a hard ass I was. I, um, I bought some spray paint uh, and I was going to spray paint inside of this massive stormwater drain uh, some graffiti for my sister. I thought, you know what, because uh, my sister used to catch a train and go past there and she could have looked in there and saw it. She, she still lives at home. My mum never kicked her out. Uh, and I used to go home and see her and say hi or whatever. Anyway, so I, I, I tried to do this piece uh, of graffiti and it was shit. And I went, <laughs> that's shit. I said, I can't show sure that. This is going to, you know, laugh at me. Uh, and I was, you know, I was sitting there kind of like, because there was like an open part of the stormwater drain. Have you ever seen those really massive brick ones? I'm trying to visualize it. I know what you're talking about, but I'm having a hard time visualizing you sleeping in one of those. Okay, so what I did, so what I did is, well, just on the outside of it, but within the fence, like there was a whole bunch of you know shrubs and bushes and you know small trees, yeah. And so I stashed my stuff in there and just kind of on the side of it, you know, that's where I'd sleep. 
Because they're, yeah. at, the, at the most, there'd only be like a really small trickle of water because there's stormwater drains. They're basically empty all the time, yeah. except if there's a storm. Right. How Not did you exactly look after your stuff? Like, if you're in the West, then if, how, how did you come across getting even a weekly shower or something along those lines? Uh, you'd go to someone, you'd find out where there was a party and you'd have a shower and, <laughs> you know, there'd be food, so you'd eat there or, you know, you'd go to, the, you know, the shops and you'd kind of steal or you'd, you know, bump some money off someone or just, you know, or you'd try mm-hmm. to see if you could find someone from one of those, one of the other schools I went to or something like that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, it wasn't um, really good. I mean, I went back and forth to, uh, uh, different refuges like sometimes you turn up or yeah it's just uh hmm. it's never you know like like i said i wasn't you know uh type of kid i wasn't i wasn't mugging people yeah, yeah fair <laughs> uh, enough you know, i was probably too scared to get mugged back but anyway so i felt really bad uh and i went you know what pete you fucked at everything uh i was about 14 years old i said you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna wait till about two o'clock in the morning uh, there's a shopping center down the road. I thought I'm going to pick up one of the massive big, uh, 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 what are they called? Uh, big pots that I had. You know, like, you know, how you get the really big ceramic pots. They put kind of small trees in them. Yeah, pot plants, yeah. Yeah, but the real big ones. I've seen one okay. of them and it yeah. didn't have a tree in it. So I'll pick that up. I'll throw it through this plate glass window that was uh, a sports store. And I thought, at the very least, I'll be able to look cool. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll run inside. I'll you know because I can run fast. So you know, I thought, <laughs> I'll go in there. I'll take all the clothes off. Uh, get a few pairs of sneakers, and I'll look cool. And you know, I'll just have to become a bona fide criminal. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I I I I snuck over. There was no one around. Picked up this massive ceramic pot and I threw it at this plate glass window. The sports store and it just bounced off. And broke into hundreds of bits. All <laughs> <laughs> well, the alarms went off, and the, you know, the beep, 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 and, I, and I ran out. I ran back to where I was staying. Some of the friends was like, "This is fucked." <laughs> I thought, "Man, I can't, I can't even become a criminal." <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I was, you know, it really was sad. <laughs> I was sad, man. I was like, "Come on, you know, I got to, you know." I was like, I was desperate. I was like, "Man, I'll, I'll, I'll take anything." You know, I, I thought. You know, and I didn't really have, you know, it's not like I had a huge self-confidence where people are saying, hey, Pete, you can do it or stick to it or, you know, be the best you can be or, you know, it, you know no one gave me a book to say, hey, read this, son, because I couldn't read. Uh, I, I taught myself to read outside of school. Uh, and, you know, I was like, like there's got to be something. got to be good at something. Everyone's good at something, right? You know, I knew that. And, um, you know, I was, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but I kind of looked up to the, heaven so to speak and said come on give me something let me be good at something if you get if you let me be good at something anything i promise i promise i'll stick to it and you know i'll, I'll work hard and I'll, I'll do it for as long as i can to the best of my ability just give me something anything i'll take anything uh and nothing happened <laughs> nothing mm. happened that year the next year the year after that and almost the year after that nothing but uh I, I had an I had an argument with a guy at a refuge I was staying at that I really liked, and they kicked me out because we had a fight. And I got put in this refuge that I didn't want to go to. But this refuge, when I used to go and walk to the bottle, uh, I used to walk past Karate Dojo. And I went, "Hey, that's cool, you know." I, you know, I thought, you know, hard work, you know, discipline, you know, 
karate, they're badass motherfuckers. <laughs> I, I think I wanted to do, I always wanted, uh, I always liked the uh, Korean flag better because, you know, yes. the Japanese flag is the, uh, just the red uh, dot in the middle, right? And the Korean flag had the, the words around the edge and, you know, they, they had like a yin yang. I thought that was better, but I thought, you know what? It's close enough. Yes. Uh, and I walked in and I said to the guy behind the counter, I said, hey man, what I need to have to do to become a karate champ <laughs> this true story, man. I was that kid. Uh, years later, the guy who was behind the counter, his name was Johnny. He said, Pete, when you came in, uh, after you left, I went back and told the guys. And the officer said, man, this crazy big-ass kid just walked in. <laughs> and he said, what, what does he need to do to be a karate champ? And they said, they all had a giggle. having saying, yeah, he's some crazy kid. Uh, but I was serious. And, and Johnny said to me, he said, turn up at 6 o'clock. Wear something comfortable. It's 50 bucks a month. Uh, now I was in a in a refuge that I could stay longer. I think it's just before my 18th birthday, and I, I came down. I was really excited. Wear a pair of basketball uh, shorts and a, and a and a you know wife beater singlet. And I remember standing there in the back, and we're doing reverse punches like oiski, yakuski, you know the basic punches that you know everyone sees in a karate kind of what typical karate thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was trying so hard. I was like, fuck. And my sensei said, I said, Peter, was that you? I said, yeah, yeah, sorry, mate. He goes, no, no, not sorry, mate. He's like, boss. I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he said, not, yeah, yeah, boss. I said, fuck. He goes, don't ever swear again. I'm thinking, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was in a nice area. It was in Dremoyne. And I thought, he just thinks I'm some poor, you know, I was an angry, you know, two steps away from being a street kid, you know, young yeah. homeless. Uh, and I was like, oh. I thought, Fuck this guy. I'll show him. I'll be the best guy who ever walked through his karate dojo doors. Turns out that guy, a guy called uh, Sensei Graham Porter, uh, one of the most influential, if not, well, if it wasn't for him, uh, you know, he wouldn't have set me on that path to where I am now. And th- that's kind of how it started. I just, he just had that certain, you know, quality. And I just try to base myself on the what way what I thought he was uh, you know he was tough he was a pretty big guy uh, he comes second in the nationals you know uh, he uh, you know he had produced some pretty tough you know Kyokushin karate guys back in the day that was you know they, Kyokushin was real badass you know uh, can you briefly just going. explain Kyokushin it's effectively um, uh, it's uh, bare knuckle fighting with no punching to the face. Is that correct? Yeah. It's like, if you imagine uh, Muay Thai, so Thai boxing, without punches to the face, can't elbow to the face, can punch an elbow to the body, you can knee, you can't grab, not really, although every now and then they let you get away with it, but you can knee someone in the head and kick him in the head. You know, they're known for being, you know, tough, resilient, uh, you know, strong fighters, you know, really good at smashing in low kicks. Uh, uh, and the guy who started a guy called uh, Masayama, they call him Sosai Masayama, you know, he was a real badass as well, went around the world, you know, just trying to fight as many different people in as many different styles as possible to prove himself. And, uh, you know, he comes from Japan, place in, uh, in Tokyo called Ikebukuro. And I believe you, you also ended up getting a black belt in Kempo. How, how do you describe the, the differences between the two styles? It's funny, actually, you know, the difference between a Kempo and Kyokushin uh, is very little. 
Kempo, of course, started in Hawaii with Japanese guy. Um, uh, and but it was in Chinatown. So what happened? You know, you know, most karate are very, very, very similar. Mm. You know, some of the the patterns or katas or whatever you want to call them uh, can be a little different. But most of them, you know, six of one, half does the other. You know, karate derived from me teaching you or me teaching one other person or, you know, or one or two people. So, and they developed it for that person. Does that make sense? So, if he's a big yeah, guy, you can teach him these things. So, that's the most beneficial. You know, if they're really small and, you know, I'm going to teach them this way. So, know, a little bit like BJJ, you know, it was developed, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu was developed so the little, the guy, little guy could beat the big guy. It wasn't. Right. And that's what karate initially and essentially was as well. The biggest difference between any style, whether it's Kyokushin, Kempo, Sado, uh, Ichigeki, whatever, is uh, slight variations on the person who was taught uh, by, you know, who's ever teacher. So in Kyokushin, uh, uh, sorry, in, in Kempo, because it comes from Hawaii in Chinatown, on one side there was some guys, you know, with some Kali sticks doing uh, Filipino stick fighting. They went, you know what, that shit's good. We're going to add that. And there was another guy next door doing, you know, you know, Chinese Kung Fu. And he went, you know what? Some of the stuff, because, you know, of course, karate, you know, lots of, uh, you know, lots of the roots of karate will, comes from uh, uh, Kung Fu. Uh, you know, there's some parts they took out, you know, especially really typical of Japanese martial arts to become very singular. You know, anything that's outside of it, they just want to perfect a few certain things. Mm. So there were some things that they have still in uh, uh, Kung Fu that they took out. And then, so the Kempo guy said, hey, we're going to add that back in. And the guy said, yeah, man, that really works. So that's really the biggest difference. Kyokushin is more classically Japanese and Kempo has some other things. So it has a bit of Filipino stick fighting in it, which is cool. And it has a little bit of uh, uh, Chinese Kung Fu. So I, I'm just a few years younger than you. So my formative years were spent watching the UFC where, um, you know, within those sort of first UFCs that they started making fun of a lot of traditional martial arts and, and things sort of automatically moved towards Muay Thai. And one of the, the, uh, the big things that was written off with it is the idea of kata. Now, I um, I teach BJJ at a karate school as well, so I do some of the classes, but kata is still intrinsic into it. What's what's your view on that and I guess the, the, the benefits to it or, or how have you evolved your thinking around that? It's, it's really, really simple. If you look at it, learning to read and learning to fight is the same thing. When you learn to read, you learn your ABCs and then you learn your small words. Uh, and then you learn your sentences, then you then your paragraphs, and then you know uh, a full page or uh, 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 a chapter, and then a book, right? So when you learn how to fight, now I'm not talking about learning how to teach karate, but when you learn how to fight, you have basics, and then you have putting those basics together. So. Uh, say, you know, when you see karate going up and down in a forward stance during a reverse punch, you go, what the fuck are these people doing? Well, they're learning that small section to punch and move at the same time or to kick and move or kick and block at the same time or punch, kick and move. So they're learning small sections of it. Okay. And then kata or forms is what they're doing is saying, we're going to put a whole bunch of common moves together and we're going to practice them 
putting uh, transitioning from one move to another uh, to another move. Example uh, in uh, in BJJ, I, I know that you kind of uh, been doing that for a while. How long have you been doing BJJ? I mean, you must have been doing it for quite some time now. I started both at the same time. So I um I started both when I was still in Canada in 2003. So I um I saw a yellow page advert for BJJ at <laughs> a Black Dragon karate studio, which is run by my master Gil, <laughs> and he has a black belt in um, karate and Kali stick fighting that you were talking about. So I went oh, to yeah. BJJ class and they were on one side of the gym. So they were subletting the space. And then yeah. um, I went and talked to him and he's like, well, if you want to do both classes, you know, we'll give you this X amount discount. So within a week I was doing BJJ and stand up striking from the same point in time. And so I've been doing both awesome, since man. 2003 and, and now um, I've moved up to Newcastle now and um, I'm training, um, I'm teaching BJJ there because I got my black belt from Anthony Parosh not too long ago. Yeah, I know, man. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, and so now I've sort of been reintroduced to karate and I was given sort of an an honorary black belt, if you will, in, in karate. And, and yeah. the guy that I teach under there who runs the karate studio, is, um, he considers his his Sheehan Cameron Quinn, who I know, I think is a name that you'd know quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cameron's awesome. Yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, yeah. so would you want to get back to what I said? Where were we? Yeah. Um, so, so we're talking about kata, but I guess a good place to put that off is like, do, do you consider, because what I was saying is now with sort of the modern version of mixed fighting, um, kata is not taken seriously. So do you, do you, you're saying, okay, so here's my answer. Yeah. So, the, building so, so the next, uh, yeah. So the next thing is, is, you know, you go from putting two things together, uh, and then you're going to put it together in a group of set patterns, uh, uh, and then, you know, then I guess you could say it's like shadow boxing. And they do that whether it's classical ballet, classical martial arts, or e- even boxing. Boxing, they teach you to chat. And then, you know, they'll teach you, uh, uh, you know, a, a good coach will teach you to jab, cross, move, step, move, step, forward, step, back, step. You say, hey, let's, let's practice these bunch of moves first. Now, Japanese are, are really like to have things uh, in a set order. So they, they, they love that. So if you ask me if I think karate is important, absolutely. It's just that most people don't know what it's useful. And there's so many people who do karate have got no fucking idea about what they're doing. It's not even funny, which is cool. I don't mind if people do karate and they're saying, hey, I do it for fun and it's really cool. Uh, I like all these movements. I don't really know how that applies because I can't actually fight anyone in anything because anyone who does karate should be able to fight anyone, any style, and beat the fuck out of them if they're good. <laughs> okay. If not, if they say, oh, no, no, I just do this kind of karate. Say, that's bullshit, man. You're doing it. You're training for a tournament, which is cool. I used to be hard-ass about this, but I'm like, no, no, that's cool. I, I got no problems with that. But don't, don't tell me you're a, you know, you're a stone-cold fucking uh, Kyokushin or stone-cold fucking Kempukai or whatever it is if you can't beat everyone at all styles because karate was never developed initially just to go in karate fucking tournaments and it annoys the shit out of me. So many people don't know the difference. Uh, and the difference is, is like, if you, if you are taught karate by someone who knows karate, you're going to become a badass motherfucker. If you know someone, if you're taught karate by someone who knows how to teach you how to win karate tournaments, you're going to become a badass in those karate tournaments. It's really cool and really fun uh, and discipline and respect and honor and all that stuff and a bit of culture and uh, uh, and wearing a cool uh, karate uniform. I get it. It's fun. 
but that's not real, what real karate is. If you have a look at guys like Masayama, you know, he, he fought it. He said, man, I'll fight anyone. Uh, and, and then when he got his ass kicked, he went, okay, we need to change that. You know, it's the same with uh, Kung Fu. Kung Fu is cool and fun and all the funky things they do. But, you know, Bruce Lee got his ass kicked and said, hey, man, I got to improve that. And, you know, these are the type of guys who went, hey, we've got a great style, but let's not forget what it was originally for. So, so why is send my kids there so I can have... That, that from the outside looking in, it, it doesn't seem like, and I'm not, I'm not limiting this to karate, but it doesn't seem like a lot of traditional martial arts with the onset of things like MMA have chosen to adapt to that. A lot of them have just continued to sort of sit within their own silos and do their own thing. You know what I think it is? Mm. Is what happened is, this is, see, I was at Uchideshi in Japan. That means I lived in the dojo in Japan. And I went back and forth a whole bunch of times. So, uh, especially with Kyokushin, you know, there was uh, Masayama, uh, and he taught Nicholas Pettis. And Nicholas Pettis and I, we trained together all the time for K1. Uh, and then we were in uh, uh, Sengoku and stuff like that. So, uh, so it was, you know, one person away from Masayama. Same with guys like Cameron Quinn. He was like him, Masayama. You know, and... and you know, what they taught was, you know, it, if, if you really understand how to do karate, you've got to put it all in. But what happened is, is a lot of people, and there's a lot of things they just teach in Japan. There's never, I've never seen taught outside of Japan. It's like, well, this is, this is real Kyokushin, and this is Kyokushin for the rest of the world. All right. Okay. And it was like, cool. Don't tell anyone, Pete. This is what we're doing. All right. Um, okay. So how, uh, how, how did yeah, that? Do, well, do you, I had to, oh. to bring it to the masses? You know, striking was, uh, you know, particularly you know, seventies, eighties, and nineties. Striking was the be all and end all. Mm. And then now we know that if you're a badass wrestler, you know, you, you pick someone to dump them on the head. You know, if you're really good, uh, you know, Brazilian uh, BJJ, you know, that's you know, choke you the fuck out. That's just see you later. Uh, so. But what happens is these big karate organizations said, you know, uh, to give this to most amount of people, most of the time, we need to come within a set group of rules. And because culturally in the West, we saw hitting someone on the ground or doing something like that on the ground as, you know, or you don't kick a man while he's down or jump on top of him and wrestle. I mean, that was like, you know, once he goes to the ground, it's finished, right? They didn't mm. stand up. So they went, I'm guessing, Hey, let's just teach them this half, uh, and then you know maybe there'll be a few people who want to do the rest of it later on. So, um, Mark Matthews, the gentleman who runs Newcastle Karate, where I teach out of, he he was saying that um, from his understanding, kata was introduced as sort of a an easy way to develop self defense for the military, and that's why it was done in that style. So, is that a different group, or or is, is someone got it wrong, or? Is that how it was sort of introduced for, for military purposes? No, not that I've ever heard. Uh, he, I mean, because, I mean, it's not, I mean, I can see why someone would think that or why someone would say that to someone else. It's not without its merit. Uh, but so the, the, the way that the military, so if I was teaching the karate to the military, yeah. you, know, you know, someone come in, 
you know, with a stabbing motion or, you know, coming over the top with a, you know, with a, a knife or something. And military, most of them, we're just going to shoot you. There's a drone going to evaporate your suburb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, as they come to do something, you know, you want a set group of movements practiced again and again and again, you know, uh, that, you know, become what we call uh, unconscious competence. You know, you do it the first time, you're not sure, you know, uh, unconscious incompetence. Do it a few times and it's conscious competence. Hey, I can do it if I think about it. Uh, and then uh, unconscious competency is when you can do it without thinking about it. Uh, you know, target comes up, shoot the target, target falls down. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You do, do it enough times. It yeah, doesn't matter where you are. If you're holding a gun, there's some, something jumps up, bang, falls down. So, I mean, yes, but I, I still see a lot of people will say something like that, but not really understand how to teach it or what's the practical application of it. Like, hmm. if I'm teaching you an MMA uh, to, to defend against a, a single double leg, you know, sprawl, parry, take their back, re-naked troop. I mean, is that Carter or are we just drilling? Yeah, fair enough. So, okay. So, the, does the, that make sense? It does. And, and what I'm getting out of this conversation is that, um, you know, in the introduction, we mentioned that sort of all the different spheres of fighting, but it sounds very much like you still consider yourself a, a karate guy at heart. So, do you want to tell me what, what happened there? How, how did you move this into kickboxing and how did that lead to professional fighting for you? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so, uh, I kept on going back to Japan. Okay. Uh, so the first time I was there was at Uchideshi. So that means, uh, you know, live in at the headquarters in Ikebukuro in Tokyo for Kyokushin. And when I was there, I was there with Francisco Filio, Globe Fotosis, Nicholas Pettis. Uh, and these guys were all, t- you know, they were all talking about sending these guys over to K1. Sam Greco had just signed with K1. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of talk about it. It's like, you know, this was the elite of karate going into the elite of kickboxing. You know, back in the day, K1 was just so epically big in Japan. It's just, I, you know, I don't think there's anything that can compare with it. Could you take a uh, second and explain that? Some of the people who are listening to this aren't going to understand what, what K1 is. Do you want to just explain sort of its formation and what its purpose was? Yeah, sure. K1 was uh, a worldwide organization that had the biggest tournaments in Japan uh, under a modified uh, kickboxing, Thai boxing, karate rules. So uh, the head of Sato Kai Khan came up with the, the rules, which was you know, uh, you know, some kicks from karate, Western boxing, uh, and Thai boxing knees. But you couldn't grapple, couldn't throw elbows, and to begin with, it was only for heavyweights. Uh, so the biggest, baddest, you know, people on the planet come and beat the shit out of each other under these uh, hybrid rules. And it was only three three-minute rounds uh, with a one-minute break. Uh, so, you know, the, you know the, the athletes could be really big. You know, you weren't going before that. There was, you know, you could fight for a kickboxing world title and go 10 rounds. Yeah. Like boxing. So it's designed so you, for you know, spectators because it's, it's the tournament format, short three-minute rounds, let them kill each other and, and advance effectively. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Big. Tough, scary guys, super exciting, lots of knockouts, and you know, unless you're, you know, you know, <laughs> so the, a war axe, you, you know, you, you have no intention of ever going anywhere near that tournament, except the, if you're watching. This would be uh, really it was incredibly popular in Japan. Yeah, and and I sort of remember it from that time period when I was getting into this. I, I remember, um, you know. Uh, 
Jerome LeBanner, um, Dutch Lumberjack, Peter Ertz, these sorts of guys, um, Andy Hoog. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you tell me sort of how did this come to your attention? So you were in Japan at this point in time. What what I'm trying to get across from this is a lot of people don't K1 just sort of popped up and was there, but you you seem to have been around when they were like, hey, let's let's try to finalize this style. And if I'm not mistaken, K1 was a year or a year and a half still before even the the first UFC, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 94. 94. When was the okay. first UFC? UFC one was 93. So maybe that happened and then they, they said, let's just focus on stand-up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, K1 just seemingly was huge from the get-go. Mm. Um, but it had the elite of the elite. Like the Dutch, you know, from John Vosch, Jim, and Cry Chicky. They, you know, they went to Thailand and they seen what the Thais could do. They were all doing, you know, karate before. They were always doing kyok shin. And they went, hey, man, we're going we're gonna to add in this, uh, you know, some of these things that Thai boxers do because it's awesome. They've got these awesome low kicks and, you know, they're more effective with their knees. So we're going to do that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they, you know, kickboxing. And they said, well, you know, they obviously, the head punches with gloves on. So we're going to do that. Uh, and then it just kind of attracted you know, the best heavyweight karate guys as well. Mm. Uh, and then guys, of course, like uh, Jerome LeBanner comes from uh, uh, Savat, right? Which is uh, the French kickboxing martial art form. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, it just seemed to attract, you know, it just kept on getting, you know, physically and literally bigger and bigger. <laughs> you know, the people, you know, the, the tournaments, you know, like, you know, tens of thousands of people at tournaments like every other week, you know, uh, you know, finalized in the Tokyo Dome in front of 70, Oh, I remember people. the audiences when they were showing it. Yeah. R- around that period. I certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm there and these guys are going and I'm like, Hey man, I want to do that. And, the, uh, the, you know, like, not, nah. I'm like, well, I'm Australian, right. And, you know, I was a street kid. So I'm not used to anyone telling me what to do. I'm like, well, I got back and I told my karate instructor, I said, that's, you know, that's bullshit. They can't tell me what to do or can't do. And, uh, at that time, uh, and I was, uh, so I just got back from Japan. I just turned 21. Um, and I was angry as fuck. Uh, my brother just died of a heroin overdose. Okay. And I've just been told I can't do the only thing that I think that I have a chance to improve my life. So uh, my karate instructor, you know, tried to talk to, Everyone in Japan, Kyokushin, and, you know, let me do what I wanted to do. And he just, you know, we tried to do it the right way. And he just basically said, Pete, do what you got to do, man. So I just went in every single karate tournament I could find. Anything that I thought I could have a full contact fight in, I went. Uh, I started kickboxing. I started boxing. Uh, I joined Black Belt Program. With, uh, and I just took every fight I could. And I said, this is it. I'm not. Gonna, I, was, I was so angry at the world. I was like, if I, if I don't, if I don't fight, I'm gonna kill someone somewhere else, or I'm gonna do something stupid, or I'm gonna, you know, become an alcoholic or drug addict myself. So I just, I just worked, worked so I had enough money to train, somewhere to live, uh, and fight. And I just fought, 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 fought. I was having like 17, 18 fights a year, mm. uh, and uh, I, I just, uh, I became undefeated amateur world champion. Uh, I was also undefeated as a boxer. Not exactly a big feat. It was only one fight. Um, and then I just 
yeah, I just I just kept fighting, just like fight, 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 fight. You know, it just uh, and I had a single uh, my only focus on anything was get back to Japan, fight K1. So how do you do that? To take me through that path. You're doing all these tournaments now. You're winning them. How does the opportunity come knocking? So what happened was is uh, a guy called Tarek Salah started doing uh, K1. Uh, and then they had like, uh, like entry tournaments or super fights that you could, if you won that, you could go to the next level, go to the next level. Uh, I was managed by Lucy Tui. I just started training out of uh, Mundine's gym in Redfern. Yeah. I was uh, just reading Mark Hunt's book and her name is littered all over that thing. Lucy Tui. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She was my manager. She she looked after me as my amateur. Uh, and yeah, me and Mark were both at Mundine's gym at the same time. If you read his book, there's another guy called Okunomatangi, who's just as good as both of us, but by the weird twist of life and fate, he just lose when he probably should have won or, you know, it's kind of crazy because he was just as good as us because me, Mark, and Hawkeye just, you know, every time we sparred, you know, we just sit there and beat the crap out of each other. <laughs> sometimes Mark would be a better, sometimes Hawkeye would be a bit better, sometimes I'd be a bit better. Uh, and and Kyokushin was still messing with my life. You know, they were, you know, they were trying to stop. They, they were telling uh, K1 not to let me fight, that they, they looked after me and they weren't letting me in. So, you know, I'd win something and I'd, you know, have automatic entry into the next tournament. They wouldn't let me go. And I'm, I'd be just like, it just drives me insane. Like I was like, I was just a ball of anger. Uh, but, you know, instead of, you know, drinking myself to death or punching the fuck out of people on the street or my girlfriend or whatever, I just went to the gym and I just took every single fight I could. When, when I say every single fight, like uh, one time I fought for, well, I fought for the, a, a world, Thai boxing world title in New Zealand in Dunedin mm-hmm. on, on a Friday night or uh, maybe it was, you know, it was a long weekend uh, Saturday night. I jumped on a plane, went to the top of the island, waited till the morning, jumped on another plane. Sorry, I drove in a car to the top of the North Island, went to the morning, jumped on a little plane, went to the main airport in Auckland, jumped on another plane, went back to Sydney, went back to my house in Redfern, uh, got changed, packed my bag, had a snooze for a couple of hours. Uh, went down to Melbourne and on that Sunday night uh, I fought a K1 Eliminator fight that got me into the K1 Oceana. So that we were in two days, two pro fights wow. in two different countries. Right. And, I, and, you know, the boxing authority said, Pete, do you, you have another fight? I said, oh, yeah, but it was in New Zealand. I said, Pete, you know, you're not meant to. <laughs> I said, oh, but I thought because it was in another country, <laughs> you know, they, you know it, would, um, it would be okay. And I said, Pete, Stop trying to be stupid. You know, we know you're not that dumb. Okay, well, okay. They said, don't do it again. So, okay. But, uh, and then, you know, so I, I won the, uh, against Chris Christopolidis, uh, who was from Melbourne. I beat him. And then they gave me the entry into to Oceana. And then, you know, you win Oceana, you get, you get to go to a super fight. And so, you know, Yokohama or, you know, or one of the, they, I mean, they're still massive, like, you know, Yes. 40,000 people um, come watch it. Uh, and then my first fight in Japan was against a guy called Jan the Giant, who was exactly that. He was a massive, massive, big uh, white guy from South Africa. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nordkey. Yeah, yeah, Nordkey or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yep. That's exactly who it is. Uh, so I beat him and, uh, and then I lost. I lost to uh, Adam Watt, 
uh, a legendary Australian fighter. Uh, but you know, I got my toe in the door, and I just they said, okay, well, uh, and you know, and then you know, every time, every opportunity I got, I just said yes. Mm. Stylistically, um, it, it took me a while to to understand this because I've never trained over them with them. But you know, you talked about karate, traditional kickboxing, Dutch kickboxers who came to dominate in in K one have a very particular style. How do you identify? I've got my own perceptions of what I've heard by other people, but how would you describe their style and what makes it um, difficult or has led to to them winning so many tournaments? Uh, I think it's the way that they train. Because uh, they go hard, they, don't they? They, they, have, well, they don't really have an off button in any form of sparring. Yeah, uh, they don't. Certain <laughs> parts of Holland, uh, uh, it's certainly tough, and there's a lot of there's a lot of big mean bosses there. Oh, super nice guys, but they you know they're tough fighters. But it's you know it's it's the way that they train is almost uh, like a carter with each other. So instead of hitting pads so much, they'll hit each other. So we'll get padded up to the eyeballs uh, and we'll do drills with each other and just drill it again and again and again. So, you know, when they come to, when they come to fight, uh, getting, you know, they're, they're battle hardened. Uh, oh, wow. And they're so, it's so popular in Holland. It was, it was crazy. I remember once I was there uh, with a friend of mine who had a fight uh, in Amsterdam Arena. Besides the fact that Amsterdam Arena, when it was fighting, just epic. You know, they, the Dutch love kickboxing. Uh, and kickboxing loves the Dutch. Uh, but uh, we're at a hotel and I'm like, oh, is it here? And they said, no, but they had two rings set up and they said there's, there's another tournament on the same night, but there's two rings going simultaneously. That's how popular it is. It was just a heavyweight tournament. Everyone was heavyweight. It was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and, you know, you meet guys who had 45 fights and two losses that you never heard of and you're like, how is it possible? These guys forty-two and zero, or forty-two and two rather, and I, I don't, I don't even know who he is. I've never heard of him. Yeah, right. Uh, I, they just just produced awesome fighter after awesome fighter. Because I know what you're talking super about. Cool, really cool, super cool. In terms of the sparring, where they sort of stand in front of each other and throw combos, but uh, the, the style of Dutch kickboxing, I, I didn't fully understand until someone said what they're really doing is sort of Western boxing, where they throw you know a jab, cross, hook, but they finish everything off with like a a low kick as hard as they can. They said, and it was explained to me that stylistically, that's what you'll see out of it, sort of Western boxing with low kicks. Would you would you say that's an apt description? Uh, I guess of the Dutch kickboxing style. With Thai knees. With Thai knees. Okay. All right. Well, I guess yeah, that explains so over him. Karate, low kicks, Western boxing, Thai knees. Perfect okay. way to explain it. Yep. Perfect. The best of everything. Because that's, that's really what, you know, John Voss and Cry Chicky and uh, Hippolyte and all those, you know, guys back in the day were, you know, developing. And man, they developed it. <laughs> so I dominated. And I, I want to talk about because, um, you know, if you still hang out on martial martial arts forums and, and read online, your name is still thrown around for the fights, especially for the first one that you had with Batahari coming up. And there's still GIFs and video being thrown around of, of the rolling thunder because it's one of the few times where it lands where it almost kills a man. So how... Where, where did you, because you have become synonymous with that move. The, the Rolling Thunder is now a Peter Graham move, but it, it <laughs> takes a bit of balls to sort of decide that you're going to throw that in a ring. 
Um, so where did you sort of learn that? And at what point did you, did you have that predetermined that you were going to try to land this within the match? So I'll answer the question in, in sections. First of all, uh, where, I, where I got it from was a guy called Gary O'Neill, who's a Kyoshin guy from Queensland who trained uh, with uh, Shane Cameron Quinn, used to do it. And he did it. He did it like he was a member of the Bolshevik Ballet, man. It was fucking beautiful to watch. <laughs> and he was a, you know, a, a middleweight at best, and he'd been knocking out heavyweights all fucking day. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy is awesome. So I want to do that. Anyway, so I practiced, you know, I went karate tournaments and, uh, to, you know, not really much success with it, but I always practiced. It was part of my repertoire. Uh, but what really changed it for me, I was at Mundine's gym and there was this guy doing capoeira and he was doing roll kicks and he was doing them slightly different. And I went, fuck, I said, hey, dude, can you teach me that? And he looked up to me and went, you're too big. You can't do this stuff. <laughs> okay. I'm like, what the fuck? So anyway, uh, as you can imagine, I just kind of went, oh, well, you know, maybe he's right and look for something else. No, no. I, uh, I, I watch this guy all the time. And uh, what uh, he does is he, he, he faked when, when he was uh, doing it, when they were training with other capoeira guys, he, he pretended to throw a right hand and it'd leave the other guy open. Now, capoeira guys were you know, really flexible. They lean right back and can touch the ground and stuff like that. So they get out of the way for it. And I thought, man, I reckon I can land that if I can get, because there was lots of guys who did Thai boxing or came from a Thai boxing background. There's actually a lot of Dutch fighters who uh, stylistic have a Thai boxing style of Dutch fighting more so than a kickboxing, which means that they'll lean back out of the way of uh, of punches as opposed to slipping them like a boxer. Right. And, I, and I went, okay, so I, I can, if I can get the guys to slip into uh, a faked right hand, then I'll be able to hit them with my left foot as a, like a spinning heel kick, but then into the roll kick. So I, I just worked on developing it like that. And then it just started to land. Uh, and then, unfortunately, good mate, bad hurry. Uh, I mean, what an so, amazing so again, fucking athlete. Let, let's, let's talk about this guy for a second because, again, there's going to be a lot of people who don't know who he is. You go in, I think you're, when you guys meet, you might be a decade older than him. I, I don't think he's yeah. been on the scene at the time, but as the stories come out over the years. He just blown onto the scene. He just blown up hard. He and, just come on and he was like, he just back kicked the fuck out of uh, Stefan Leko. Like, yeah. I mean, the sickest, most brutal back kick you've ever seen. Look it up if you haven't seen it. People. Stiff is a board it's on the heavy. way down before he even goes down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, uh, and he was trash talking everyone. And uh, he, he was the new, but not only bad boy, but he was the new man on the block. Everyone's like, this kid is fucking awesome. Uh, anyway, so he was waffling on uh, and telling he's going to beat the crap out of everyone. Uh, and of course, since, you know, uh, K1 wanted me to uh, uh, not really be there because Kokushin was saying, look, you know, if you don't, if you can find a way possibly not to use him, don't. Uh, I was going to ask so you about that. We'll talk about that in, in, in a bit because you seem to disappear from the K1 scene as quickly as you arrived for some unknown reason. And it sounds like you're yeah, alluding well, to why. Yeah, absolutely. That's what happened. Uh, anyway, so... You know, uh, then they wanted to get Badahari into uh, the top eight. They want to make him top 16. So let's uh, – now, 
the disc got leaked. They said the easiest way there is through Oceana. And man, everyone in Oceana is like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, we, we were just livid. I was livid. I'm like, man, you know, add to my ball of happiness. <laughs> they, they're now telling everyone that, you know, in Oceana, <laughs> I'm just not I'm only picturing a, you, Cepho, and Hunt going, okay. Yeah, yeah, going. Ah. <laughs> Stefo was more of a superstar then than me and Mark. He, Stefo was you know, like almost half a generation in front of us or something. So Stefo was still the man. He was, you know, super cool. Mm. Uh, anyway, so, you know, this guy comes down and it's a press conference. We're there and he's just mouthing off to everyone, you know, talking everyone down. Uh, and I'm like, in my head, I want to say, shut the fuck up and, you know, jump up and beat the crap out of him. But so if I do that, I won't get the fight. If I don't get the fight, <laughs> I can't win. If I can't win, I can't make the money. And if I can't make the money and I can't win, I can't go to Japan and make more money and be more famous and make my life better, whatever. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I knew this and I was talking to my best mate uh, called Tony, uh, Tony Dow, uh, who's in the corner for the fight. You'll see him there. Uh, and I said, Tony, man, this guy, is just mouths off to everyone. And if you have a look at his press conferences, Says the same thing. I said, let's practice some snappy answers to his, uh, you know, stupid comebacks. <laughs> and so me and him, uh, you know, we were just practicing. And I thought it's, it's, uh, you know, I reckon I said, the, you know, he's a good fighter, but if I can get him angry and unfocused, he'll make mistakes. I guarantee it. Cause he I is. I remember young. this clip. I can't remember what it is, but I think you, you're wearing sunnies in it or something. I can picture the, the table, the panel in the, in the pre-fight match. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever seen a highlight of a kickboxing uh, a gift or something, <laughs> you've seen that. You've seen millions and millions of times. I got like a, a black jacket on with camo pants. Yeah. And a pair of Someone put this together. Hair. I'm sure you've seen it. It's like a two or three minute video talking about all the hype and it leads up to the, to the rolling thunder at the end. Yeah, well, what happened is, you know, there was an argument and, uh, you know, I basically, he went, fuck you, and he goes, fuck you, sit down. You know, he was like annoyed because, you know, got one up on him on the on the talking. And then he walked over me after the press conference, he, walked, he was looking at me and I'm like looking at him going, like, what the fuck's this guy's problem? Uh, you know, I'm like, cool, you know, if you want to talk up to the press conference, that's cool. I, I, I don't mind. I was like, whatever, dude. Say whatever you want. I don't care. You know, we're all going to make more money and we'll all be more famous. You know, it's good for everyone, right? Mm. but then afterwards he's still giving me eyeballs and he walked up and I'm thinking is, is this guy fucking mad are, are you serious are you, you want to keep going you want you, you really want to go again uh, and he's uh, he's leant over and tried to kiss me and uh, well you know call me kooky and old fashioned but you say some man not so kind words my, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know my, my father kissed me as a baby but that's kind of where the man kissing stopped uh, so I pushed him off and in a split second I thought if I, I was thinking about hitting him with a left hook uh, you know you don't even see it in, in the video it must have happened in you know you know half a eon of a second I thought if I hit him and I hurt him there's not going to be a fight so I, um, I I tackled him yes Yeah. now a, bit, a lot of people say oh well that's really good man it was a single leg or a double leg what are you trying to do there I'm like no, I just tackled him. <laughs> I, just, I just thought, fuck. Because at that time, I wasn't doing any MMA at all. Yes. Well, it's probably a bit too early for that. And, and, and Batter Hari goes on to become even more dislikable over the years. Uh, they, he became despicable. 
Uh, and then, you know, uh, the fight. So what happened going back to the Rolling Thunder is, as I noticed in the second round, I thought, okay, he's a bit more tired now. It was a super high tempo fight, you know. Uh, so I, I hit a roll kick, you know, I faked it with the right and it just clipped him a little bit. I thought, what I need to do now is be, um, he just needs to be, a, he, he just missed it. I thought, if he can just be a little bit more tired uh, and I saved my energy right before, the, I'm going to try it right before the end of the last round because I could feel he was, he was gaining, gaining momentum. Mm. I thought, okay, so I just try to stay super focused and like, keep my body relaxed. And, you know, but, you know, he just kept on pushing the tempo. So, you know, it was tough. So, I, you know, and of course, it's a fight. You know, you've got some psychopath trying to knock your fucking head off. <laughs> it's not exactly an environment that's easy to go, hey, relax, be cool, man. Uh, but I did. And he did exactly the same thing he did, you know, uh, you know, halfway through the second round. But this time he was just a little bit slower, which meant that my foot connected perfectly. Mm. And the rest is history. <laughs> you um the, the second match doesn't go your way I, th- I think you guys ended up meeting twice uh, i mean when you, three times three the times second match was in hong kong uh and what they did was uh the, the whole fight he kept holding on to me uh and i'm like i'm, I'm yelling at the ref say hey man let him get up let's fight you know uh and you know it was like messy and horrible uh, and um, you know, I was trying to push him off, push him off. It's like, come on, let's fight. And they gave him the fight. I was so angry. Mm. And uh, the third fight was in Dubai, which I lost as well. But I had a super tough fight before. They only gave me a really short break. They gave him the, like a really easy fight. I had a really tough fight. Uh, mine went the distance. He's, you know, he, he knocked out Stefan Leko, funnily enough, you know, almost instantly. And then he had like a two-hour break. I fought this other young gun. It was a super tough fight. And they basically got me straight back out. Uh, and I was completely fucking tired. And I just, I took a knee. It was, uh, I feel bad about it, but I just, I was like, look, I'm not fucking stupid. <laughs> mm. Do, um, okay. So, uh, and, and then just to clarify then, because as I said, you, you went missing from the K1 scene where it seemed like you would become a staple of it. And you reckon this had to do with the connections with Kyokushin Karate in Japan, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, so when I first got there, you know, uh, even after the Yarn fight, uh, Yarn Norge, uh, K1 called me over to the K1 desk and said, hey, Pete, um, so your manager is, um, uh, you're signed with Kyok Shin, right? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working with Lucy Tui uh, and Tarek Solak, and Alex Tui is my coach. Uh, I said, well, we, the Kyok Shin said, you have a signed contract. So I don't have a fucking signed contract with them. What are you talking about? They said, and then they're trying to say, well, you know, you know, you're, you're a black belt with Kyoshin and you're trying to, I mean, I said, I, I signed on to do karate in Australia. I was at Uchidashi in Japan. Like now, 20 years later, I realized I see their point of view. I didn't understand that. But it was like, you know what? In Australia, karate is karate. Kickboxing is kickboxing. Two different entities. And no one ever told me, so bad luck. Uh, but they just they kept stifling my career. They kept stopping it. They kept saying, don't use him. I didn't find out all this out until later. But in saying that, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I got angry. I got upset. Uh, but I just kept doing it. Uh, I mean, and that's why I started boxing. Uh, you know, they, they wouldn't let me keep boxing. So I'll box. Okay, don't jump ahead of me here. Don't jump ahead of me. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, so who is it? Does that mean like, is that your dojo in Japan? Or is this actually like the Japanese... 
uh, Kyokushin Karate the head of Association at the time. Right. Okay. So, it, so it is the association body that's um, undermining you. <laughs> so, I'm kind of scared saying this. I haven't actually said it to anyone ever publicly. So, I hope they don't. You know, there's some badasses there, man. I hope they can come and whack me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, um, you know, that's the one before he got whacked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that might be the end of it for me as well then. Hey, hey, look, maybe we'll, I don't know, we'll catch you, have a beer before. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> what, yeah. what, um, during this time period as well, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit more familiar with Pride as an organization only because I, w- I was more interested in MMA. But they were, the, the Yakuza and everyone seemed to have their hands sort of in, in both pots, although we know in Pride they were effectively funded by them. What do you remember about... Um, my understanding is that effectively both organizations had no policy on um, substance abuse or anything. So they were actively encouraging the use of steroids and that sort of activity to create the biggest monsters available to fight. Do you, uh, I'm sure you've seen some using, but can you just sort of commentate on, on what you saw at that period or I guess the overall policy on that sort of stuff? Well, yeah, they weren't into talking policy with the fighters. But from my understanding, my my kind of, Info from you know the guys I was with and hanging out with is you know do whatever you want as long as it's not any amphetamines. Mm. Fair enough. Uh, and everyone seemed to do everything. I remember once uh, I was talking to my management. Uh, I tell you another story. It's, uh, it's kind of a little funny. Uh, I was talking to uh, a guy who was in K one. He said, "Hey Pete, um, what supplements are you taking, man? You're doing really well. What, 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 are, you, what are you taking?" So, well, I'm taking a, a multivitamin, a bit of creatine, and uh, you know, uh, you know, if I yeah, got some money, I'll take some, uh, um, some, uh, you know, some. I got some protein powder. Vitamins, yeah. sponsor, you know. And, he's, and he goes, "No, you fucking idiot!" He goes, "What are you taking? What are you taking? You know, testosterone or you know, Dianabol or Decostanazole or I'm like, "Oh, nothing." I remember he looked at me like. You're a fucking idiot. What what the fuck's wrong with you, kid? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, I'm okay. Uh, and then I was asked later. They said, look, you know, you should really do it, and you know, we can do it properly. And uh, this was management back then. Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm winning, and I you know I don't really see the. I'm big. I'm always being a big dude. I don't think being any bigger is going to help me. Uh, you know, and I don't really feel I need to look like a, you know like an Adonis to, to win fights. I want to win fights. I don't want to win front cover of GQ magazine. Um, and they said, look, why don't you try it? We'll set it up properly and you can try it. So I said, okay. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was totally kosher with K1 and everyone, everyone knew it. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. Uh, and I did for one fight. And I said, look, I said, I, you know, it just doesn't seem to work for me. I right. said, I don't, you know, I was bigger. But I didn't feel any better. I actually, you know, I could feel the weight of the muscle. I'm like, I think I fight better without it. Uh, you know, I, I went my entire career without ever having to have a do- see a doctor for, you know, other than getting my eyes stitched or something. Like, I, I never had, uh, you know, I never went to a physio. Uh, I never broke a leg. I never tore, you know, any tendons. You know, no broken bones or, you know, it just I was fine. You know, I built like a brick shit house. So I'm like, you know. Mm. It seems to be working. Why? Why you want to try to mess with it? So, what do you do? You, you tried it once, or you cycled it for one fight effectively? Yeah, yeah. And okay. I, you know, uh, and you know, of course, everyone knew everyone else was you know 
geared up to the freaking eyeballs. Mm. But, you know, anyone who's ever known me, I've been big forever. It's just like, like I hold weight, not a problem. I lose weight pretty quick too. Uh, but if I, but I also eat huge amounts of food, but I eat more then. I kind of eat a little, a little less now. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people are going to want an insight into how contracts are structured. I mean, you, you've moved around through different organizations, but at the time, was it just single tournament or, you know, these days with, especially with organizations like UFC and what you ended up doing with Bellator, you sign multi-fight deals. How were these, um, how are these typically structured? If, if it's K1, I assume there's single fight. Then if you advance bonus on there, um, because for a lot of outsiders like myself looking into this, it's a pr- pretty precarious job if you're not under contract of where your next meal is going to come from. Yeah, that's exactly it. For me, a lot of the time was, here's a contract written in Japanese, sign at the bottom, we're going to pay you that much. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that was it. <laughs> Most of the time, it's like written in Japanese. They're like, I said, what does it say? They said, well, it says you're going to fight and we'll pay you this amount of money. Uh, good thing about Japan, they always paid you the cash. They just give you to a big water cash. Here's your money. So, uh, but you'd have win, win bonuses and you know, uh, knockout bonuses. And in tournaments, you know, they'd, uh, you know, if you won the tournament, you get to progress to a super fight. Mm. But, uh, but the amount of money was so different for different athletes, it was it was incredible. You know, if you, you read the story about how much Mark Hunt made to go to enter the K1 Grand Prix the year he won it, mm. same with me. You know, I was like, uh, I remember uh, I had a super fight booked to fight Sam Greco, and I was like, man, this is awesome! I'm so pumped. I'm gonna make a whole shitload of money. It was you know, the most amount of money I ever made. Uh, and then, uh, sorry, I had a super fight booked for Ernesto Hoost. Uh, and then we're going upstairs uh, in the hotel and me and um, my coach, Alex Tui, uh, bump into Peter Ertz and his mate and his coach and say, hey, you're going to fight Sam Greco. He said, no, no, man, we're fighting Ernesto Hoos. said, no, man, uh, Ernesto Hoos, is, uh, his psoriasis is playing up. Uh, he's not fighting. You're going to fight Sam Greco. I said, well, how come no one told me? And this shit used to happen to me all the time in Japan. It was just, you know, you know, that, that's how the fight game goes, right? Mm. Anyway, so I'm like, oh, wait, whatever. Uh, so I fought Sam. I smashed him. I stopped him in two rounds. Uh, and Sam's really cool. I love that guy. He's you know, super supportive and everything. Uh, and after he's talking to me, he said, hey, Pete, how much did you make for the fight? And I'm like, uh, man, I don't really tell people how much I made for the fight. It's kind of, you know, I don't tell people. He said, look, you're going to tell me because I'm going to tell you how much I made. I want to tell you something. I'm like, okay, well, I made $30,000. Uh, it's 30000 US dollars. You know, uh, I thought I had made more money than God. Mm. And um, I was so happy. He goes, uh, come with me. So we went upstairs, went into his hotel room. He said, look at this. And he pulled out his contract. And he said, see that? He goes, that's how much I made. I made $300,000. Wow. Okay. And I went, fuck. And he goes, Pete, I'm telling you this not to brag, but he goes, just remember, man, you can't bank ego. Of course, there was my little fucked up part of my brain that went, he's just saying that because I beat him. He's just trying to say, ha, ah, sucked in, I got more money. But <laughs> it got through my thick head that it's a good point. You know, you can't bank ego. You know, everyone's blowing smoke up your ass. They're giving you gifts, you know. You know, everyone's friendly to you. And, you know, you know shit changes dramatically, really fast. 
but that little piece of information was really, really good. You know, and he said it from the right place and he was a good guy and uh, <laughs> I'm happy he kind of gave me that, that guidance. Uh, but most of the other guys who've been there for a while, they're all super cool guys too. Um, but, the, but the contracts were like, this is what it is. We're not negotiating. Uh, uh, not, not, a, not for me anyway. It was like, this is what we're going to give you. Otherwise, you don't fight. And I just mm. wanted to fight. I wanted to fight K1. Uh, like now I know how much some of the other guys have made. And I think to myself, fuck. But I also know other guys who've been fucking ripped off so bad by managers and organizations. So, you know what? I guess I'm somewhat in the middle. So, mm. yeah, I, I'm, I'm always grateful for what I got, man. I love fighting K1. You know, I love fighting in Japan and Sengoku. I mean, I just love fighting, but yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, ACDC says it the best, right? It's a long way to the top if you want to rock, rock and roll. And roll. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, only because you had mentioned Ernesto Hoost, um, I think this still came out a couple of years after you were there, but what do you remember about Bob Sapp? Because he came in and that... What was it? I can't remember. It was the first or, or second time he just pushed Hoost around, put him in the corner, and then just beat him up. He seemed to do really, really well in K1. And then as we sort of know, as he spent the second half of his career seemingly just taking dives for cash. <laughs> Bob Stapp's still my friend. Uh, yeah. we He's a good guy. Uh, he's also an unbelievably talented actor. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and you know what? Uh, he was a really good friend of Sam Greco. Sam said, hey, you know, try this thing in Japan. And, you know, I've met a lot of athletes in my life, but Bob Sapp is just is such a large human being. Uh, and his ability to turn it on when he wanted to was instantaneously, it was unbelievable. But he's not a fighter, but he's just so big and athletic that if he, if, you know, if someone that big hits you, you that's it, show's over. But mm. there was lots of things he used to do to mess with people's heads. Like what everyone else saw of him publicly, you know, that, that there's his persona. You know, you know, uh, sometimes he acts a bit like the buffoon or, you know, the clown or whatever. But if you ever, if you know, if you talk to him, he's really articulate. You know, he's got a, like a degree in... Um, uh, Venner science and you know he's a really smart articulate guy uh, but he wasn't a fighter when we were in Holland and he was fighting Peter Erz I remember we're backstage and I'm saying come on man um, Bob let's go man we, you're going to be fine you know we trained for this because we were training together uh, in Tokyo and you know I could tell he was really scared he's not a, he's not a fighter he's a really kind of more of a soft guy you know, he's more of a, you know, an intellect, almost a nerd. Uh, but when uh, when he first went, he's like, "Fuck it, I'm, I've got to do this. This is my chance." You know, I can, uh, you know, he, you know, he was smart enough to see that he was unique enough that it's exactly what the Japanese people wanted. They and they did, man. They wanted him. I mean, he still holds the world record. Uh, unless it was beaten by Batahari in the last fight for the most amount of money made by one fight uh, by one fighter in a year. 
It's like 17 million US dollars in one year. Or was it, it was a huge amount of money. Oh, this would uh, have been around the time that they were trying to get Mike Tyson to fight him then. I think they were doing K1 in Vegas around that time. If, uh, if yeah, the, the time he had like a thousand uh, sponsorship deals, a thousand sponsorship deals wow. from CD players to uh, dildos. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's insane. They're, they're offering, you know, uh, huge amounts of money for anyone who could get a, uh, a photo of his prick. <laughs> like, man, it's crazy. Uh-huh. We were talking about, he goes, he goes, Pete, you don't understand, man. We're trying to photo, take a photo of my dick. <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. So, but when he went there and when he wanted to put it on, he knew that if he just landed any of those big bombing overhands, it, it was good night. I mean, you've got to understand, it's like some... Ernesto Hoost is um, he, he's exactly what his nickname is. It's perfect. He moves... His balance. I remember sparring with him at Super Pro in Thailand because all the Dutch guys go to Super Pro. It's like a Dutch-owned Thai boxing gym mm-hmm. uh, in Koh Samui. And this is after he'd retired, and you know he, you know he put a weight on in his guys, and but still, you know what was coming? Jack Cross, left of the body, right low kick, but he'd still get you. It's like he really was, and he is the Muhammad Ali of heavyweight kickboxing. And mm-hmm. so to be beaten by, you know. George Foreman, so to speak, twice is epic, which goes to show that any given day, Anyone I mean, this is why anyway. I love fighting so much, is it's like, it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, there's, you can be the guy who's stylistically perfect or you can just be a big, badass motherfucker and hit someone and put him in the next week. But it also means that if you're good enough and you can do it, you can make it. You can be the guy who wins. You can be the champ. And that's exciting. That On any given day, you're in with a 50-50 chance of winning a fight. What do you think? Because um, the the biggest name that mo- that moved across, who never ended up winning a title in either organization in K one or then into Pride and UFC, was Mirko Krokop. But the hype surrounding him at the time is probably, uh, to me, it was on like McGregor type levels. Uh, I just think it's hard to, uh, you know, you know. It, 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 you win a big fight and then maybe it was having the ability to back it up and and replicate that against it against another A-class fighter. I think that was tough. You know, who knows what was going on in his life or how his training camps were, you know, the real thing, not not the, the media covered event. Uh, but it's true. I mean, but I mean, to win a tournament, an A-class tournament against three A-class fighters on their game in one, you know, two or three-hour timetable, you know, time period is is fucking punishing. I mean, it it takes skill, tenacity, fitness, strength, ability, and a bit of luck. What what do you think happened to K1? They started doing more events. They opened up the weight classes. And over time, the, the value of the product began to diminish. And it's since been usurped by glory kickboxing. What, what do you think sort of happened to K1? Or with any of the guys that you know, did they provide any insights? Uh, <laughs> you want to know what actually happened? Or you want to know what I, I, I feel was the reason? Are you asking what happened Legally, or what happened? Well, tell me. You know, let's, they, let's, well, how, let's, they, let's well, so, well, how they lost their, their, their 
what I feel is how they lost their popularity was because they were trying to up the ante on super freaks. You know, Bob Sapp works so well, let's get uh, Hong Man Choi. Hong Man Choi, and then let's see who else we can get. We'll get, um, uh, what's that? We'll get, uh, not Kanishki, um, what's the uh, Hawaiian uh, uh, sumo guy? Um, oh, my brain is stopped working for a second. Anyway, so they just kept on trying to get more and more freaks. But what they, I think what people liked about K1 is that there was, you know, the athletes were freaky as opposed to a freaky person. And then what's, sorry, and then you said like the reality of the situation was something you said there were sort of two parts to it. Yeah, well, that's why I think it lost its, you know, its uh, popularity because, you know, the people want to see, you know, when you see the very, very, very best strikers in the world sit there and duke it out in that format. It was awesome. You don't want to watch two, you know, two-star basketball players, you know, try to duke it out because the skill level wasn't there. So it lost some interest. That's what I feel. Uh, and also, uh, the head of K1 went to the bank for it. Or, sorry, for tax fraud. So what went to jail for tax fraud? Yeah. I mean, that was common knowledge. But yeah. So I think that kind of put a spanner in the works. Do you think, um, uh, what, what do you sort of think of the overall state of kickboxing now in terms of its popularity at the moment compared to when, when you were in the midst of it? It's, you know, it's on a slow boil, but I, I don't think anything, I mean, uh, K1 was just special. It was like Pride. K1 and Pride at their peak, it was just another level, especially with K1. K1, I mean, Pride, of course, but from a from a kickboxing point of view, K1 was just special. It was just, it just kept on producing awesome fight after awesome fight. And that was, you know, exciting. Mm. Um, you know, you, 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 earlier you had mentioned that you were sort of being pushed out of the organization and that led to you moving into boxing. Um, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, where do those opportunities start to pop up? There's not many kickboxers who move into boxing. I, I remember... You remember a guy named Matt Skelton, who was a uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. English kickboxer. I think he was in the very early Pride stuff that went into boxing, but not a lot of guys do it. So, uh, for you, were you saying it was more out of necessity? Well, I wanted to fight, so when I couldn't do that, I was like, okay, I'll box. Uh, you can't do K one and box in Japan, uh, and then uh, I did. But then, you know, so I was having more kickboxing fights, so you know, I stopped doing the boxing. But then uh, I. Um, I started to, you know, it just whatever, like, like there are three levels, uh, sorry, the three different styles that are most popular in the world, of course, is MMA, boxing, and kickboxing, you know, whether that's K1 or Thai boxing. Uh, so I just, if anyone offered me a fight in any of them, I'd just keep going. And if I kept winning and I got offered another fight, I'd just, I'm like, I just, you know, so if I ever saw a little crack, if I saw some light, I'd you know, jam my foot in the door and just kept on trying to get another fight. I was like, yep, I'll fight him. Yep. I mean, you know, they, you know, promoters like fighters who get out there and just fight all the time. Uh, and they like it when you win. So I guess, you know, most of the time I won. Uh, so I just kept on taking those opportunities. Uh, same with, same with MMA, you know, it was just like, uh, like when we first met, uh, my MMA career was, you know, it was going nowhere. 
but K1 had died in the ass uh, and boxing had gone flat. And I'm like, uh, and I was training with, you know, legendary Australian uh, MMA and, and uh, jiu-jitsu practitioner Larry Papadopoulos, um, uh, who I'd known forever as well. And we just worked super hard in that. Uh, so is that, is that how you ended up in boxing works? Is that you were just you were going where where do I move to now? And so you switched gyms, or you ended up at Larry's to learn grappling? Is uh, yeah, I, I moved back from Japan, and uh, K one had dried up, and there was no no you know, no boxing they could make any money from, uh, and I still had the opportunity to fight uh, in MMA. Uh, so I spoke to. Uh, Alex too. I said, "Hey, maybe I train with um, Harry." And Alex said, "Yeah, sure," because I want to do some MMA. Was, you know, different, different stuff. I never did kickboxing with Larry. I never did MMA with um, uh, Alex too. Uh, so I just kept working that. But uh, Larry, of course, is an unbelievable wrestler, catch wrestler. You know, uh, awesome. You know, he's a third down in BJJ as well, and I've you know, been doing very. He was the uh, Ranked number one in um, uh, Shooter in Japan as well. Very early like, stuff, you know, 92 and stuff. Yeah, that sort of period, yeah. Yeah, man, badass from back in the day. So, you know, we really worked on my MMA game. Uh, after coming back from Japan, I had a couple of fights there. I lost, and then I lost. And I, lost. And I said, look, man, I got a connection in Russia. If you want to fight uh, uh, Alexander Emelianko, sure. So this this fight problem. kicks it all off, hey, because I remember watching that fight and he just attacked his legs mercilessly, and it was like he didn't seem to know what to do. Did that become sort of the the springboard, which is what sort of set up Bellator and KSW for you? Yeah, because I I, uh, I was like, okay, far out, man, I just couldn't get a break. I'm like, man, these guys keep I keep on getting tapped out. Like it was obvious that you know you know BJJ black belts were better grapplers and better at BJJ than me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, of course, these were slightly modified rules. So uh, Drucker is, you know, the Russians' version of MMA. So they really like the striking. So if it doesn't kind of that sort of they, ten you know, seconds like, on the ground type of thing. Yeah, I think it's thirty seconds. But yeah. you know, they don't, you know, unless you're really going hard to, you know, put someone's ankle off or you know, choke them out. You know, they're, they're not. They're just like you know, stand up. If you stop for even. A few seconds, they're like, okay, stand up. Okay, yeah. Uh, they're Russians. They're, they're, they're hard ass. They're like, eh, whatever. Uh, but they, you know, they really understand, obviously, <laughs> MMA you, completely. Did you, um, when I started training with guys that just did boxing, so so for the most part, um, you know, it's always been sort of kickboxing for the purpose of, of MMA. Um, but when I started training with pure boxers, I started learning the intricacies of boxing and footwork. I found it really hard to adapt to because you just don't have the mobility in kickboxing because it's really sort of sitting on your back leg while using your front leg to protect you. And I, it, it took me quite a long time to adapt and to get more confident with my feet. Did you have any sort of similar problems like that or were you able to adapt to it quite quickly? I come from a karate background. So in karate, they have basic stances, a forward stance, back stance, and a, and a regular stance in the middle. So a forward stance is like a boxer. A back stance is like a tie boxer. And, and six or one half hours in the middle to be like an MMA fighter, right? 
So I didn't really have that much. Uh, I didn't have trouble with the stances. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Boxing is a tough sport. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, even more so like um, really having to learn how to fight moving backwards a lot more and learning how to cut angles a lot more. I found really, really difficult in a pure boxing environment. I don't know. I didn't have that problem. I mean, of course, coming out of Mundine's gym, it was a uh, boxing gym. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, uh, you know, and you just spy everyone. So we were boxing all the time as well. Uh, don't get me wrong. When I first started boxing, uh, uh, you know, I could punch hard and I was fit and I was strong. There's a big difference between what you said, you know, boxing, you know, you know, someone can really box. It is a sweet science and they will just, you know, make your head look like a smashed potato. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I box okay. Uh, but I, didn't, I, I find, I find, but when I train for a boxing fight, I only box. When I train for an MMA fight, I just, my whole camp is just MMA. When I do kickboxing, it's just, just kickboxing. Well, you're um, out of all the people that I've had the opportunity to spar with over the years. I still remember you being the most controlled, and I remember having this conversation with Larry as well. Despite your size um, and as much danger as you could have put me in, I never felt like I was in danger sparring you. You always very much had the ability to spar to the ability of the person that you were with. Um, I know that's not always the case. I guess I'm more. I'm not even asking for your input. This is just more of a a compliment. But how did, uh, stylistically did it take you a while to do that? Because as you would know, sometimes even what's meant to be a friendly spar can escalate pretty quickly. Sometimes my rule of thumb was always be this: the smaller or the least experienced person picks how hard and how fast you want to go. So if they're not being a fuckwit. I'll be cool. <laughs> so if you know, if you got a new guy who's a white belt, or you got a you know someone who's just starting kickboxing, uh, and they're small, you know, uh, if you want to go easy, then we'll go easy. I mean, mm. you know, it's uh, like I said, I, I live at the bottom of a little mountain. It's about eighty to a hundred meters hill, whatever. Uh, if I keep climbing up and down there, it's going to be pretty easy. You know, uh, you know, it's no. You know, if I was a mountain climber, it's nothing to brag about that I can climb up and down and, you know, 80 meter, 100 meter hill, right? Mm. If you're a fighter, you know, beating up, you know, people who are clearly not as skilled or as big as you in a gym, that makes you look like a freaking idiot. Mm. Like for me, uh, I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed, you know, inspiring people who wanted to learn. Uh, but uh, it just, it was just it just hold no didn't give me any joy to beat up someone who was smaller than me or not as skilled as me and who I clearly knew that I could beat up if I wanted to. Mm. The joy that I got was, you know, standing in front of an absolute freak of a human being going, Oh my God. And you feel it. You feel everyone in the crowds, you know, when they you know, when your opponent walks out and they're terrifying, Alexander and Melianko, and you know you're the only person who's up for that job. Everyone else in the whole arena has gone, there's no way on God's little green earth that I would step in the ring with that man. <laughs> and then you go, you know what? I'll fight the dragon. Bring it on. And when you win against something like that, it just you, you can't describe the feeling. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's like, that's it. I, I, 
and if you're a fighter, you're just like, that's it. I want to do it again. I want to do it again right now. I want to and let's <laughs> go again tonight or tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or the next fight. And that's what I'm like. I'm like, I just, I just, and I just, you know, that was, the, that was the excitement, not the excitement of, you know, showing everyone in the gym that I can pick the crap out of everyone. Almost because I am a big guy. I'm not really big. I'm kind of big. I'm 6'3 and about 120 kilos. Um, uh, you know, you kind of like, I'm like, I don't, I don't want you to be scared of me. I want you to be my friend. You know, I'll show you how to do stuff. Uh, in the ring, it's like, okay, now I can let it go. Because I knew, you know, that's the place that you get something positive from it. If I beat the crap out of, you know, like when I met you, I said, I beat the crap out of a guy I know that can't keep boxing and he's obviously not as big as me. And then he'll go, you know what, that Peter Graham guy, he's a fuckwit anyway. <laughs> I lose a friend and it's a making friend. And I'm all into making a friend. Fair enough. Um, you had mentioned, so you know, you, you've touched on the the fear of going in there sometimes. Um, and when speaking with some of the other fighters, they they don't really admit that they're scared very often. At, at different points, when you're doing the promotional stare downs, and you had mentioned the Emilian Ankle brother, then um, are there any moments or key people that you find that you just went like, "Fuck, how am I going to get through this? I'm terrified." Yeah, you know, Emilian Ankle. Yeah, it's like looking into dark sort of nothing. He's still man isn't has he? no Those soul. two brothers, yeah. huh? No, no, uh, no. Fedor is fine. He's uh. a really super nice guy. It's chalk and cheese. Fedor Emelianko is like you. You know, I remember one time we we're in Russia. We sit down together. And we're in like a, a fairly cheap motel that he'd chosen to stay in as well. Instead of staying at anywhere he could have, he could have stayed at anywhere. He was the main event of the fight. You know, he's like a demigod in Russia. I was sitting down at this like cheap breakfast bar and he's sitting there by himself. I said, hey man, what are you doing? Let's have breakfast. You want to sit down? Sit there. There's like, but his brother's just like, man, chalk and cheese. Uh, the other person who's uh, is Mark Hunt. You look into Mark Hunt's eyes and you just, I don't know, you just, you don't, he's not angry. He's not, not scared of you. He's not like there. looking into pools of blackness. It's funny because in his book, he said that's how he feels before a fight. Like, doesn't feel it. He's not afraid or anything like that. And it's true. It's true. He's, he really isn't. I mean, I've been afraid, but if Mark Hunt said he wasn't afraid, I, I would believe him. There's another guy called Jason Suddy in New Zealand who's like that as well. Uh, but for me, there was plenty of times I was afraid. But I was more afraid of not having a fight. I was more afraid of staying where I was. I was more afraid of being a loser to me, not to anyone else. I didn't think anyone else give a shit. Even when I'm, uh, most people in the world knew who I was and the most famous TV all the time or something. Like, I, I still didn't think anyone actually gave a shit. I was like, oh, well. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, you realize it. I go, hey, that's really cool. That's really nice. But I'm like, you know, I'm not the best in the world. I'm, I'm pretty good. But that guy's better or whatever. So I, did, I, know, I never, I, know, I never personally bought into any of that stuff. But certainly, there is uh, that that fear drove me emotionally in training. Like you know, when you sign on and you go, "I'm going to fight that guy." You know, you want to get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning, go for a run. There's your motivation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um... 
So tell me about the move into MMA. As, as you said, you said K1 had dried up. You started looking at boxing, and then that, as you had already mentioned, that's kind well, of where we cross paths. And they, they wouldn't, they, you can't box in 2K1 in Japan. <laughs> Different groups of gangsters run it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do both. You can do MMA in K1, but you can't do MMA, K1, and boxing, or you can't do MMA and boxing. Just, just not going to happen. Okay. Uh, so MMA, uh, you guys said, Hey Pete, you you want to go? Uh, there's this new organization, Pride had went under. Uh, it's the people from the Pride office. Uh, 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 it's not Ichigeki, it's uh, Senkoku, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and I said, sure, why not? I'll fight. Uh, they had some cool MMA uh, coaches, so I just started training MMA, uh, mm. and uh, uh, I, I just. I kept on losing by, you know, guys who just could, you know, they just their BJ skills were miles in front of mine. Like I almost did none before, and then I said I'll do it. So as soon as I went to the ground, I just lost. Uh, but I just kept training. I kept training. Kept training. Uh, the only problem is if you keep losing, it doesn't matter how popular you think you keep making less and less money. And the fight with Alexander, I, you know, I made almost nothing. Well, they offered me almost nothing, so I took the money. I was in Brazil. Uh, I was training with Pedro Rizzo. Uh, oh, right. In, yeah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shout out, guys. Really super nice guys. Everyone, yeah, Brazilians are awesome to train with. They're so friendly. Uh, I mean, they're bad. Oh, Hizzo was one of my, my one of my favorite guys from that that early time period. There's um there's one fight where he's fighting Trey uh, Teligman, and he kicks him so hard he spins him 360 standing. It was amazing. Yeah, he's probably the best low that doesn't come from a karate background I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I mean, right. probably he is. He's, he was really super nice to me, super friendly, uh, and trained with all the guys there, that team. How's his English? Uh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, right, okay. I'll have to see yeah. if we can speak with him. Anyway, so if there's just translate. Yeah, right, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So- yeah, she just translate for me. How do you feel then, I guess, between competing across all of them, um, in, in, what do you think were the unique challenges of it? I mean, clearly, you know kickboxing pretty well. It sounds like you had adopted or you were happy with your adoption of boxing. Um, what do you feel you sort of left on the table with MMA? Obviously, some of the, the grappling stuff, but was the transition harder than you thought it was? Because with the money that's now in MMA, I'm quite surprised at how few stand-up strikers have continued to move over into MMA. Uh, oh, I've lost it completely again, Pete. I thought... Uh, I might get some more Bellator, but you know, the, the thing about fighting for, you know, well, fighting in America to begin with, I was like, man, I couldn't make any money, paying the tax and all these other things they have to pay. Uh, it just, you know, it just became more lucrative to fight in other countries. Um, but uh, I would have liked to fought, you know, have a proper training camp for uh, MMA world title. That's the only thing I, I wish that I left on them which I wish I had done because I, I won the, the Draco uh, intercontinental title I came second to Czech Congo in the Bellator heavyweight tournament but uh, I never got to have 
uh, uh, a world title fight in MMA. I really think I could have, you know, I was on the verge of being able to win one. Uh, but that's, I really like to do that still. I really, that, that's about the only thing. Uh, um, what happened with boxing? Because you won the Australian heavyweight um, title, but as far as I can tell, you, you didn't defend it, did you? No, you don't really defend it. You go to the next one. That's the idea. Right. Okay. So what kind of was happening was uh, two things. One, I'd opened my gym. I was super busy. Uh, I have a family, young family. <clears throat> so I, I kept winning. Uh, and then I won the WBO uh, uh, Asia Pacific, like the biggest uh, – uh, regional boxing title you can win. It's a heavyweight. Uh, and then, then you've got to kind of work your way up through the alphabet soup. Uh, so the alphabet soup, I like, like how you say that. Uh, so, you know, you have to win one of the, the smaller world titles, but it has to be legit. And the first one off the rank, you know, just under the, the three big ones uh, is a WPF. So I fought for that. A big guy called Julius Long. Uh, and then after that, it just becomes uh, super difficult to get, you know, uh, fights because there's so much money involved. And it was just like, look, you've got to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to fight these guys, you know. But this time I was a little bit more sensible. I'm like, if you want to fight those guys, you a need to pay me more money because if that guy's making five, six million bucks. I am fighting him for, you know, chicken feed. And also, I need the money to be able to train properly. Like, if you, uh, you know, to train properly, you need to not think, you need to have more than enough money not to think of anything else. Uh, when you're really young, it's just you, so you don't have to worry. But when you get older and you've got mortgages and cars and wives, and, not wives, wife, uh, kids. <laughs> yeah, you have be so one lucky, wife. Eh? <laughs> no, no, man, you're crazy. One's enough. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, uh, gym and all these payments and everything. I'm like, look, I, uh, I really wanted to, if I was a single man, I might've done it, but I'm like, uh, look, you just got to offer me a better deal. Like I'm not going to put myself in that kind of danger for that kind of money. Not, not now. Cause yeah. when I first started, you know, uh, you know, I had nothing. I was going nowhere and I had nothing. So I had nothing to lose. But by that time, uh, you know, I have a, a beautiful family. Uh, I have a, a, a cool gym. Well, up until the coronavirus, I just died in the ass. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my life is awesome. Everything I ever wanted, I've done and achieved. And, uh, you know, and, and so much more, right? You know, I'm healthy. I'm happy. You know, who can say they had 17 years as a pro with, you know, over 120 fights and had you know no injuries and my brain is normal and you know i got i live in a, a, a beautiful home and i get to send my kids to good schools in a nice area uh, uh and i have a, a beautiful wife and you know i have lots of great friends and things like that so i'm like if i was to get seriously injured now uh you know, yeah, the, you know, the, the balance higher. wasn't there so i, I need to have a big payoff because I mean, if if I lose, I could lose a lot. There's a lot to, now. I have a lot to lose, <laughs> and that's really what ended up me thinking. So, like, what you know, my wife said, "What are you fighting for now?" 
I said, you know, I said, I want to fight it, babe. You know, I want to fight. I want to what I do. Say, but this is what you fought for. You, you've achieved. You've got what you wanted. And you know, it's true. And I, it's um, I, I, I like to say that all the good things that you can get out of being a fighter, I got. So I'm, I'm super appreciative of what I got. It's not like a, I, uh, I'm angry at anything. All the things that happen. It's just like, hey, it's a, it's a journey, man. Well, you're setting up my my next questions as we sort of begin to uh, move downhill and wind this thing up. But one of the questions you had talked about, you know, making sure that you're making enough money, and and that seems to be very similar to another guy who's followed a little bit of your path, um, Lucas Brown, the boxer. Who, um, again, I don't follow boxing as much as I follow MMA, so I remember him from those um, uh, King of the Cage days. Yeah, oh, those, yeah, those early ones before he decided to to specify into boxing uh, and train with the Tahuna brothers. I believe that you guys are friends, and he's gone through some some issues with uh, you know testing for drug use. But um, recently, he said, "That's it. I'm not fighting in Australia anymore." He goes, "I'm I'm reaching sort of you know the end of my career, and the only money that I can get guarantee wise, and also the only guys that." He seems to have expressed that there's not a lot of um, legitimate promoters here. Uh, well, for starters, I mean, the biggest state for boxing was New South Wales, and the, the 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 Combat Sports Authority in New South Wales is just a fiasco. Okay, and they, they, they're just they're just killing boxing, kickboxing, and MMA. It's just ridiculous. Like, why? What are I, they doing? I remember what, signing on once, uh, and they're saying. Uh, you know, they tick, tick the professional things you want to be be able to fight in. So, you know, tick kickboxing, tick you know, uh, MMA, tick uh, boxing. It's got Thai boxing. So, oh, okay, I'll tick Thai boxing. And then it's got UFC. I said, what do you, what, what, what is this? Well, are you UFCing as well? <laughs> well, I said, I fight MMA, which is UFC. Like the person who's, you know, handing me this form getting me to fill out is asking me if I do UFC. I was like, what the fuck? This is embarrassing. These are the people who are running our sport. It's like, you know, I, I get what they're trying to do. Uh, but other stupid things like, you know, not allowing people with, you know, uh, you know, criminal convictions to fight. I'm like, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, you know, we're, we're trying to, <laughs> you're, you're taking away our talent pool, <laughs> but yeah, but you know that's one of the few ways that if you you know you might have fucked up your life completely, and you might be angry, but taking it out in the ring is the right place to do it. Yeah, that that's where you might be able to turn your life around. You know that um, you know uh, it's like uh, it's like are you people not thinking? It's just like are you, are you not aware how the system works? Why it's set up? It was set up by people who. You know who were desperate, myself included. You know, and fighting, boxing, kickboxing, MMA, whatever it was, you know, gave you a chance to, you know, beat your way out of a shit life. And sometimes that maybe all you have is that will to fight. And you know, someone says no, and then well, what do you want? Some big crazy ass, you know, person beating up people on the street. But going back to Lucas, uh, Lucas is. You know, uh, I feel his pain. It's 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 hard because you know we don't have. You know, it's also with managers, you know, promotions. You know, uh, you know we've got a lot of good coaches, uh, but but getting there and there's so many people trying to rip everyone off all the way up. It's like wow, 
And then sometimes it feels like no one gives a shit. Uh, like when he fought in, um, uh, uh, what was the name of the country? The bottom of Russia. Uh, you know, that was an unbelievable win. You know, you know, but no one jumped on board to help him out. Like I remember when I was in Japan, you know, I was winning everything, you know, famous all around the world. You know, after I knocked out Batahari, my best mate was my main sponsor. Yeah, yeah, right. Why? You yeah, know, and then you go over there, and then other people were getting, you know, like you hear these guys getting, you know, when I was training over with uh, Dan Henderson, you know, the the local car dealership gave him a massive, cool truck to drive around. He's got you know, guys with you know four fights and four wins would be getting, you know, five thousand dollars from the pizza shop. I'm like, fuck, this is unbelievable. You know, that's I mean, that's why I like America so much is such an awesome place for sports is because if they just back their local guy and nothing else. It's like it's like, ah, oh, you're a fighter, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a few good people. The guy who used to own Fat Blaster, Peter Nichols, he was really cool. Uh, you know, and there's a few others. The guy who owns URM, Anthony Johnson, he helped me out a few times. Uh, but you know, but it's almost like, eh. I mean, but it's not why I did it, but I'm just saying it's like, it's tough when, you know, you think, you know, if I win a world title, people are going to start to follow me. Now win another one, another one, another one. And I'm sure John Wayne Parr feels the same. I mean, he's got some sponsors, but I mean, you know, he's like me. He's had like 120 fights as well. Or something. Uh, and you're just like, well, everyone knows who I am, but no one, you know, no, there's no big corporate sponsor. I guess it's tough, but, but that's the thing, you know. It, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Um, uh, one of my favorite memories, just just period, is when UFC 110 came to Sydney. That was the the first time that they'd come to Australia, and because Boxing Works was based in the downtown core of the city, all the guys were coming through there. And I remember um, that was a good sparring. time, huh? Yeah, and. Um, I remember speaking to you, I think a day after I was watching you and Vanderlei spar. Vanderlei was fighting Bisping and Big Noguera was there to fight um, Kane Velasquez. Jason Mayhem Miller was floating around town for some reason. Guys like Christoph Szczynski were there. Um, well, Christoph and Mayhem, they, they all fight out of uh, Team Quest, so that's why they were there. And also those guys, are, you know, they, I was hanging out with them in the States, so they came over to, right. uh, with... Um, Ryan Parsons, who was the head coach. Ryan Parsons was there, that's right. Rafael Cordero was there, all yeah. the, Ed Soares, all these guys. Um, yeah, that was a super cool time, man. There was just, it was every day I'd walk in and there'd be new guys. There was, I was just like, this is insane. Um, I was definitely going, that whole week was just absolutely fantastic. Um, oh, and Randy Couture was there as well, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, Randy was there, really good <laughs> friends with uh, Larry. Larry, that's right, yeah. Um, but I distinctly remember you coming off and, and you said, Shit, Vandele is one of the hardest guys that I have been hit by, and he's he's smaller than you. So I was surprised to hear you he's a lot smaller say that. Than <laughs> so, but he's just got that sort of winding. He reminds me of those um those action figures where you pull the arm back and it's got the spring and comes in. <laughs> uh, I mean, what what was it? You know, I guess we can go through all that. But uh, you've sparred with everyone. But I mean, there's got to be some sort of memories that you have with these guys, and that one sticks out distinctly to me. You know what it is. Some people, you know, Van Lee's one, Mark Hunt's one, Ben Edwards is another, and this 13-year-old girl who came and did karate at my school was another. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Some people just have heavy hands. This girl came from uh, a dance studio 
she was a little heavy, not much, but she was a little heavy. And so she'd stop dance because she was feeling a little insecure. She came to do karate with us. And then uh, she, uh, you know, I sort of had a punch. She was a punch. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. And then, you know, I sort of had to do a back kick. And uh, she lifted me off the ground. She wasn't like, she was still a 13-year-old girl. I said, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I, I was like, this girl is so balanced. And like when she hits you, it was like, and, and it was just from then on, this girl could just hit uh, impossibly hard for such a young 13-year-old girl. I was like, she's ridiculous. This is, and, and you know, like Mark Hunt hits you and you, you fucking stay hit, uh, you know. Uh, he he's just a fucking big hitter, uh, you know. And there's you know some other Polynesians guys who are like that as well. But yeah, it's just how, some how do you when you work with guys like that? And another guy that sort of reminds me of that is, is someone like David Tua in boxing. How how do you try to spar with those guys? Or, or how is there any? Can they control themselves? It just feels like it's almost a fight every time that that you spar them. How, how do you try to retain some level of control? Uh, with guys like who, well, who the, the that thing power. that overcomes power, of course, is skill and fitness. So, I mean, you know, that's the most simplistic answer I can give you. So, if someone is big and strong, you need to be a fit and agile, and be skilled. Quick. Yeah, okay. If you don't like, as horses, of course, if you want to try there and duke it out with Mark Hunt, here's the bad news: you're going to lose. <laughs> um. Do you think um, CTE, uh, brain damage, has become huge, huge news probably within the last 10 years of this sport? Um, and, and as we know, even when I started out, there wasn't really, in, in a lot of cases, a lot of things like soft sparring. There was just sort of sparring in preparation for fights. Um, you've been doing this for years. Uh, Vanderlei Silva has come out publicly, said that he thinks he's suffering from it. Guys like Bob Sobral have said so. Gary Goodridge is now... Um, yeah. Do you think you've had any repercussions from this at all? Hard to say. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, uh, I mean, I've had CT scans. It's been a while since I had one, but when I had one, I remember the the people coming and small people coming in and. I said, hey, you know, I thought, oh, geez, there's a problem. I go, well, what's going on? I was, I was worried. Uh, and they said, no, we're just making sure this is your scan. I said, oh, why? What's, what's going on? And they said, well, well, you know, things like your pituitary gland and, you know, you know uh, different areas of your brain. I said, it doesn't really match up with what you've been telling us. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, so you basically got the brain of a librarian. Most people who are in combat sports or, you know, play, you know, uh, football, like, you know, you know, rugby league or rugby union or, or, you know, American football, they, they, you know, we can have a look. There's a, you know, certain, uh, the, the structure of the brain is physically different from all the impacts. He says, but yours looks like you've been sitting in a library since you were 10. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, maybe when they said I was thick at school, maybe it was a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I don't think, I, I don't think I've suffered anything. I mean, I haven't been back for a, uh, a checkup. Maybe I should, you know, uh, see anything else because I had a lot of fights after that. But, I mean, I don't have any problems like remembering things. You know, I study, I read. You know, I'm not a drunk or an alcoholic. I, um, you know, I run a business. I, you know, I, my family's kept together. All the things that seem to happen from it. Uh, I don't know. 
I mean, I, 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 it's it's there. It's real. Uh, complaining about it after someone's paid you millions of dollars to do it for years, uh, I think, is a bit of bullshit. So, hey, this is what happens if you, you know, you should know about it. And if you, if you, if you don't, if you think it's bad, you should do something else. Play golf. You know, they pay lots of money too. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit more expensive. A, might be a hard transition, I think, for a lot of people from from professional Maybe, fighting. I don't to know. Golf. I never play golf. <laughs> um, Doesn't look that hard. Uh, we're starting to. Uh, I want to talk about sort of post career now, and, and we'll wrap up there. Um, okay. There's a, a lot of guys, and and you would know this firsthand. I mean, you, you've you've mentioned multiple times how you feel blessed. You know, you've ended up with a wife, family, kids. You've done well and come out of this on the right side. I think we both know there's a lot of guys that are spending the money as it comes through, and there's no exit strategy, and they're doing this later into their career, fighting guys literally half their age on the way up for for a few dollars. Were were you aware through this process? And you said you, you kind of alluded to it, the back end of your career, looking for those paydays. As you're going through your career, are you aware that you need this money to ride out, you know, the next fifty years of your life? And, and were you able to to bankroll some of that to to help you set up your life now that you're in, in post career? Yeah. Uh I was always aware of the money because I was broke as shit when I started. <laughs> okay. and, and I didn't have anyone else to rely on. It wasn't like, oh, you know what? If this doesn't work out, I'll become uh, a lawyer or I'll become a mechanic or fucking I'll become anything. You know, there wasn't another option. I had no backup plan whatsoever. So did I think about the money? Fuck yeah. People say, oh, but you know, you shouldn't fight for the money. So shut the fuck up. you got to work for money. I mean, you go, you know, you shouldn't be an accountant for the money. You should do it for the love. You know? <laughs> sure. But I mean, it, do it for the love of getting, you know, uh, MYOB done correctly. That's why you should do it. The love of banking. No, people do it for the money. And that's cool. Uh, I mean, I love fighting, but, you know, hey, I, I love having cash too. Uh, so but during, during your career. But also. Pardon? I was just saying during your career then were you thinking about like a, one of the biggest things from from people across all sports backgrounds is that they don't think about how they can invest their money and, and make it work for them afterwards it's it sounds like you, you seem to have done all right doing that sort of activity or, or learning along the way how you're going to make this money work for you once you're done fighting in your late you know 30s early 40s yeah well I, yeah I did like uh, I got a house in Redfern uh, that was you know one step away from being derelict uh, and I have a fight, and I fix one area, and then I have another fight, and I put the money in, fix another. Uh, I was, you know, I, I really wanted to have a home. Uh, I really wanted to have a house. I, I want to have many houses. I wanted to be rich. I, I wanted to be successful. Uh, so it was really important for me. And also, you know, being a red firm for so long, I saw a lot of great fighters uh, after their career, and it was sad. I thought, man, that's not going to happen to me. So when you met me. Uh, I just came back from Japan, so I had plenty of money. Uh, I already had a house, paid off, and I was good. But when I was working there uh, and doing security, it's because I, I didn't want to rest on my laurels. I thought, nope, I'm going to keep at it. I don't want to. I don't want to end up. I'm going to learn how to run a gym, and then you know, I went, okay, I got to look around. I got to look around, uh, and I tried to learn as much as I could from Larry and Ari, uh, Ali, running Boxing Works, and then one of my clients said, hey, you know. Uh, I know someone who's selling a gym out west. Maybe you should think about buying it. And I went, oh, I was like, oh, it's a bit soon. I wasn't really, And then I just jumped on it because I thought, you know, just stick to what you know. 
and this is what I know. So I, I, I did it. It was super hard. Like I'm like, man, I remember sitting there on the steps after a week or two going, you know, I got this big rent to pay and, uh, you know, all these other you know bills that I got to pay. Uh, and I got like 17 students, 16 students, 15, whatever. And I said to them, I said, maybe we could just pack up and we could all go to Brazil. And I got a, a you know, a baby girl, you know, a little girl. Uh, but me being the way I am, you know, obviously I didn't do that. I just, you know, bit down hard in the mouth guard and said, I'll just stick it out for another day. And I just kept doing that. And that's, uh, you know, but it was important that, you know, I'd be financially uh, stable as well because, you know, I think the only people who say, oh, money doesn't matter are people with a lot of fucking money because <laughs> it really matters. <laughs> it does. It certainly does. Um, and, I, and, you know, and I never forgot what Sam Greco told me. He said, you can't bank ego. Yeah. Save your money, champ. Uh, you know, don't do stupid. I mean, but I wasn't interested in just partying. I wasn't interested in girls. I was, I was interested in being a fighter, making my life better and making money. I'm happy about the other stuff, but, but that wasn't anywhere near, you know, that was like, Fighting was ninety-nine, you know, 99.9%. The money was like super important too. And everything else was a distant, a distant second. I've, um, like I wanted to fight, not all the other stuff. I've had the chance to speak with um, Parosh about how he runs his gym. And uh, he, he's got a, a team Parosh out of um, Five Dock. And as I said, I, I train uh, and teach out of Mark Matthews, uh, Newcastle Karate up here. And they've both told, given me insights into running a gym. What, what sort of... I've got my own small business as well that I run, but what shocked you? Like, I mean, when you, you talk about rents, professional indemnity insurance, having to have numbers, Parosh gave me insights that the average student tends to last for what, something like six to seven months. So you have to always have, you know, new, new business programs running. What stuff sort of shocked you the most about doing this yourself? Uh, is how much do you need to know about business and how little you need to know about combat sports and martial arts. <laughs> okay. Uh, so have you picked up a lot of that stuff? Um, it, I think uh, I have been working my ass off for eight years, learning as much business as possible. Every year I do, I study and do courses to improve my knowledge on uh, how to run a combat sports and martial arts gym every year, all the time, all, constantly studying. And with the help of, uh, Paul Zadro, the guy who's the head of Isco and Kemba Karate. Uh, Larry Papalopoulos always helped me out as well. Uh, you know, I'm always learning and I'm always struggling, always, you know, always trying to improve on it. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's annoying, but, uh, just keep on keeping on. And at the moment, when the gym just got, you know, we went from our two best months ever to zip. I was like, how can we pivot? What can we do? How can I, how can I, Make sure that I'm there when this up. And me being prudent and and tight with my money before is you know is, means that we're going to get through this. But I tell you, it's going to cost me a packet. But th- that's life, man. But I think I tell you the attitude of discipline from martial arts and you know the you know combat sports has been. I'm going to fight for it. I want it. I want it. I got, I'm still hungry in my life. You know, I'm not going to fight anymore. But I'm hungry for success. Uh, and, and that's what I like. I'm doing a, a, a real estate course at the moment as well. Uh, you know, uh, I've done some small developments in real estate on my own. Uh, I want to improve on that. You know, we were thinking about it being another gym because there's a couple of IMCs already. They're not mine, only I'm the one in Prospect. Uh, I want one over in the Northern Beaches as well. Uh, you know, that forward progression, of course, is what keeps people happy. I've, I've learned that in my life. 
So, I, I, you know, I just always looking forward. You know, you, you never heard there's a, the, the, the saying that people in AA, you know, they say um, you know, one, one day at a time and be thankful for what you got, basically, and, you know, know the difference between the stuff you can't change and the stuff you can. And, you know, if you're smart enough to do that, you're doing well. Something like that. There's, the, the, the prayer, whatever itself it is, is, is good. You can see why it works for people going through tough times. You've, um, you know, you've transitioned, you're, you know, a business owner and a coach to other students. Um, I wanted to ask you just about, you know, how, as, as you get older, I notice, you know, you, you, you've mentioned multiple times, you know, you can't bank ego. Um, I've, as you get older, I've noticed that younger guys who are doing it full time in the way that I can't anymore, you're you're just kind of a bag for them sometimes on, on guys who are making their way up. And uh, do, how do you, I guess, do, do you have any issues mentally with dealing with the fact that your skill set deteriorates and, and you're not kind of the person who you were? You might you might know more, but you can do less. Okay, well, here's the funny thing: I, I don't have any injuries. Uh, I don't like have a sore hip or a sore back or sore neck or a bad knee or a bad hip. Uh, so I'm just out of fight shape. Uh, so I, I don't really feel that, but <laughs> I'm sure that day will come. Uh, most of the time, just my skill set just means that if I spar with someone or move around or whatever, it's just like there's not really anything there. Uh, I'm sure it'll come, but I, I think it's about just being true to myself. I mean, I. I know that one day I will become an old man, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's uh, because, you know, now I know it's a journey and uh, I, I enjoy my life. I'm, I'm so happy with so many different aspects of my life. You know, it wasn't until I was 30 years old. I remember sitting on my bed, uh, waiting for my girlfriend to come over, uh, with my cool car out the front, being signed to K1. And uh, it was a sunny day, and I was looking over the park. And I went, you know what? I'm not angry anymore. I'm happy. I'm I'm good. I, I got stuff. I'm I'm going somewhere. And from that moment on, I, I I kind of been happy. I wasn't content. That took until I was forty. Uh, but now I'm I'm pretty happy and content. Uh, but I'm 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 driven. I I, I like the excitement of going forward. So I guess being happy and content with what I've done because when I say I, I, I left absolutely everything on the table, I, I tried as hard as I could every single time. I, I, I feel that I, I put everything I can. If someone beat me, they beat me. But that was cool. Uh, and uh, there was you know, maybe two fights where I feel I could have done better. But, uh, I, you know, I was just, I, you know, I feel that it's okay. Mm. And, and they know who I am. I'm like, yeah, well, even if you got me now, <laughs> you know, still, you still got a long way to the top, Chan. And, and I'm a big guy, so there's not that many heavyweights. So I guess if I get a young heavyweight beat the crap out of me a few times, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, yeah, you're already, you've, even you're already at the top of the pecking order for the most part to, on, on genetics alone, eh? Yeah. But Black Town's got a, a few big Polynesian kids, so I've I'm sure them. one's going to walk through the door and go, hey, cheap people, my uncle sent me here. I've met a few of them. It was pretty cool. We were like, oh, man, 
this is the next mark hunt. <laughs> I've got to be his punching bag to help him get to the top. Yeah, well, that, that's, that'll um, come. <laughs> that's the story of Ty Tuivasa, the, the the kid who was on the drink who couldn't who couldn't hang on to league, so he just said, "I'll just show up and punch on." And he's doing very well for himself these days at the moment. Yeah, he did well. He yeah. shouldn't have fought me though. <laughs> that's true. That's right. That was years ago. I forgot about that on his way up. Ah. I told him. I told him. I told his manager. I said, "Don't fight me." I said, yeah, you know, I know what I'm trying to do. I said, I care what you're trying to do. I said, bad idea. Don't fight me. <laughs> I'll do it because I want the money, but don't fight me. It's not a good idea. Look, I think that's a, a, an awesome place to wrap but it Ty's up. Ty's an awesome guy, too. If you ever meet him, he's a super nice guy. Um, we'll have to see how the – we for people listening to this, we had a dropout in the audio and our, our quality has been going back and forth. So hopefully we can get it mixed and mastered into something that's uh, that's nice and audible because this has been um, a pretty insightful chat. And as always, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. I think we've been going for about two hours here. Um, well, I'm glad you enjoyed the chat. I like talking to you. <laughs> if it didn't work out, we could chat again. Yeah, hopefully, in, indeed. Well, I mean, you, I, I think there were even a couple of podcasts that you were trying to get off the ground with Jeff O'Hara that I think you guys did two episodes and I never heard anything from you guys again or something. Yeah, Jeff got busy, then I got busy, but uh, I've been working on another podcast of my own, but that place got shut down from uh, uh, for the coronavirus. So I'm like, oh. so we, I did a few. Uh, uh, so, but we didn't have a name yet. We didn't even have a working title. Uh, but yeah, I got lots of interest. I had uh, uh, Adam Courtney on, which is uh, Bruce Courtney's son, who's an awesome author. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love, I love reading too. So I love authors, and yeah, I like lots of crazy stuff. Well, when um, <laughs> when everything opens up again, um, you know, I, I yeah. hadn't realized you were on the northern beaches because we're we're just in. We moved up up to Newcastle a few years ago for the affordability. So I mean, what what would it take to get you to come up for an afternoon and work with some of our guys? Yeah, we could do that. Mm. I'll sort something out. Cool. Not too far at all. You can just jump on a ferry from where I am and then go to uh, – it shouldn't be too long. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, look, we'll talk about that when, um, when we're allowed to go outside again. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. In, in the interim, it's been really nice to, to chat with you. I've, I haven't – you know, for, for anyone who is listening, I think it's uh, – I, I moved over to the UK in like 2014, so it's been probably seven years since I actually last spoke to you then, I'm guessing. Yeah, at least seven. Yeah, yeah, seven, seven years. Yeah, wow, awesome. Time flies, man. It does, it does. Well, look, thanks for your time, Pete, and um, I'll, 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 it won't be seven years next time. I hope so. All right, beautiful, man. Cheers. Have a good afternoon. (laughs) See you.